0: Day 1. It's early. Too early. There's little movement in Ashton Grove, save for a cat mooching through a torn bin bag, looking for food. He stops when he hears a car with a knackered exhaust race past the end of the grove. At this time in the morning, with everything else so quiet, it sounds like a Formula One car heading for the pits mid-race. The cat legs it, following a well-worn path around the edge of a wildly overgrown lawn then scrambling over a fence. Ashton Grove is asleep, save for the kid upstairs in number 18 who's still playing Xbox and hasn't yet gone to bed, and the guy who lives on the third floor of the Maisonettes who works permanent nights and has only just got home. Barely anyone moves. Except Keith. He's up and out of bed before the alarm clock, but he's been awake much longer. Keith doesn't sleep so well these days. He'd go and see the doctor about it, but the doctor would only laugh or tell him to pull himself together. And anyway, when would he have time to make an appointment? Between his job and everything he has to do here at home, Keith doesn't get a second to himself. Apart from at night. At night, he gets all the time he needs, and more besides. Too much time, if anything. At night, he can't switch his brain off long enough to sleep. No one ever comes in this room but Keith. It's a bedroom stuck in a moment, frozen still when his life was irreparably changed. His faded duvet cover is from a long-forgotten kid's cartoon movie, and the headboard of his bed is plastered with spare World Cup football stickers. Not the last World Cup, or the one before that. These players, with their dodgy, dated haircuts and awkward, forced smiles, represented their countries the time before that. Or was it the Euros? Some other championship altogether? Keith can't remember now. It doesn't matter, anyway. He stumbles to the bathroom for a shower, pausing by the door to stick the corner of a handwritten sign back down. Keep out or else, it says. He made it when he was twelve. He stuck it under the porcelain plaque, which says Keith's room next to a picture of a castle that Mum bought him on holiday that time, and he's never got around to taking it down. Keith opens the living room curtains, and light floods into downstairs. He looks around and surveys the damage. A few crushed beer cans, an empty bottle of scotch, and in the middle of the debris is Dad. He's face down on the sofa where he spent the night, dead to the world zombie-like. Keith tiptoes around his old man, not wanting to wake him because every second Dad's asleep is an extra second Keith has to himself. He puts the bottle and cans in the bin, picks up the framed photograph Dad fell asleep clutching, then checks he's still breathing. It's okay. He's always still breathing. One day, Keith thinks. Then he curses himself, momentarily eaten up with regret for allowing himself to think that way. He's standing in the kitchen now, watching his reflection in the window, drinking tea and eating a piece of toast he doesn't want, but is forcing himself to finish. The garden's got overgrown all of a sudden. Mom would have been disappointed, but he thinks she'd understand. Keith's struggling to keep on top of everything right now, He makes plans to try and get out there and cut the grass at the weekend if he gets a chance. It all depends on everything else. There's a clattering noise and the scrape of a chair on the lino behind him. Keith turns around and his heart sinks when he sees that Dad's awake. He slumps down at the table, looking into space. Keith fetches him a can from the fridge and opens it, then lights a cigarette. Dad smells the smoke and sits up straight, suddenly perked up. Keith puts the cigarette into his shaking hand and fetches him a dish to use as an ashtray. Keith's all done up for work in his suit and tie now. He's standing in front of the mirror by the front door, combing his hair. He straightens the picture of him, Mom, and Dad on the beach in Cornwall that time they went away and stayed in Mom's friend Pearl's caravan. Bloody hell, he loved that holiday. It was more than ten years ago now, but he remembers it as if it was yesterday. The sea, the sun, and the sand. The freedom. Back then, he could do what he liked, when he liked. Maybe he'll go back there one day. That'd be good. You've got to have something to aim for, haven't you? He finishes his hair and pockets his comb, then looks back towards the kitchen again. I'm off now, Dad. I'll be back at the usual time. I'll get something for dinner while I'm out. Have a good day. He thinks all this stuff, but doesn't bother saying any of it. There's no point. Dad's out cold, dead to the world. The vast open-plan office where Keith now works is a hive of noise and activity. The company employs more than 200 staff here, spread out over several floors, each as busy as the one below and the one above. Some departments deal directly with clients, banks of operators taking call after call after call, cross-selling this and up-selling that. Other departments work alongside the field-based national sales team, providing high-class admin and customer service support to clients with a perceived high net value. Some teams are what the company refers to as back-office processing. They do all the work that has to be done, but which should be invisible to the customers. If the customer knows we're there, then we're not doing our job right, Gloria, Keith's boss, is always saying. It should be like we don't exist. Keith's job is essentially just data entry. He transposes information from a know-your-customer form directly onto the company's core computer system. He has a challenging rate-per-hour processing speed to achieve and an equally challenging accuracy ratio. But then again, so do the rest of the department. Thing is, he's never going to hit his target today if he carries on like this. All around him, his colleagues' fingers are flying across their keyboards. But he's just staring into space, watching his inert reflection on his computer screen, following the floating company logo screensaver with his eyes as it randomly drifts around. A sudden flurry of movement startles him, and he instinctively nudges his mouse to bring his workstation back to life and make it look like he's been working. Darren, a work-experienced kid who's only been here a week, stops by Keith's desk with his trolley and drops a wedge of new know-your-customer forms into Keith's still-half-full in-tray, then takes out the few forms Keith has processed from his almost-empty out-tray. Keith starts to focus on his work now, prodding his keyboard with his index fingers, wishing he could type faster. The phone shared between him and the next desk rings. Keith's on a roll now, several fields already completely filled, and the last thing he wants to do is stop, so he ignores it. It rings and rings, and he senses everyone looking at him, thinking, just answer the bloody phone. But Shelly's sitting as far from it as he is, so why can't she get it? He's on the verge of relenting, just about to move when she finally picks it up. He tries to make it look like he was going to answer, But he can tell from the expression on her face she's not buying it. Good morning. Data processing support. Shelley Martin speaking. How can I help? A pause. Keith listens to the gaps, trying to work out who, what, and why. Oh, hi, Gloria. You okay? Another pause. Shit. It's the boss. Yeah, I'm not too bad, thanks, Shelley says in answer to another unheard question. Keith's straining to listen now he knows who's on the line. I know. I heard about that, Gloria. Real shame. You were always saying something like that was going to happen eventually. Keith's still banging away at the keyboard with two fingers, trying to focus on his work, but being distracted by the phone call. He feels Shelley's eyes on him, and he senses Gloria's getting to the point of the conversation, small talk over and done with. Yeah, he's here, Shelley says and Keith's worst fears are confirmed. This call was meant for him. He knows he should have answered it. Bloody idiot. Just keep typing, just keep working. Sure, love, I'll tell him, Shelley hangs up. Keith still doesn't react at all outwardly, though his heart's thumping and his mouth dry. The pressure too much to stand, he finally relents and looks across. Gloria wants to see you, Shelley says. Her voice is completely different now. You can't tell if she was sucking up to the boss or if she's dumbing down to him. I'll just finish this KYC, then I'll... She wants to see you now, Keith. I wouldn't keep her waiting if I were you. She doesn't sound best pleased. Gloria marches from one end of the seventh floor to the other. Keith lagging behind, struggling to match her pace. This is the walk of shame. Generally, when you see someone being taken this way by their manager, you know they're in trouble. Meeting room two. Everyone's watching. She holds the door open for him. He squeezes past and goes inside. She dwarfs him. Bold and brassy, overconfident, overdressed, and overmade up. She stinks of cheap perfume and coffee breath. She drinks espressos from the vending machines, permanently wired. She's not the kind of person you'd pick a fight with, not if you had any sense. He thinks he'd rather take his chances with ten blokes than one Gloria. The meeting room is long and narrow. A large, rectangular conference table takes up almost the entire floor space. There's a single, small window at one end, but the blinds are drawn and the room's filled with unforgiving electrical light instead harshly illuminating everything, leaving no place to hide. Keith sits down as directed, but Gloria's too angry. She paces around the table, massaging her temples. Keith watches her every move, but keeps his head down, not wanting her to see. Have you got any idea how much shit you've caused, Keith? How much unnecessary rework? Nothing. What does she expect him to say? Jesus Christ, it wouldn't be so bad if this was the first time we were having this conversation, even the second, but I've lost count of how many times I've had to bring you into this room. Keith knows exactly how many times, but he's not saying. You know, I thought you'd excelled yourself when you screwed up that file for Genesalis, but that was nothing in comparison to this. You just don't get it, do you? You don't understand how your inefficiency impacts on the department and on the business as a whole. How it impacts on me. This ain't rocket science, Keith. This is basic, day one induction stuff. He looks up and catches her eye. She's at the opposite end of the room now, as far from him as she can get. He clears his throat. I'm sorry, Gloria. It's just that things have been really difficult recently, and I... Don't think I'm not sympathetic, Keith, she interrupts, sounding decidedly unsympathetic. But we've been through this already. I've given you more than enough chances. I know you've been through a shitty time at home, but that excuse is only going to get you so far. It's wearing very thin. I didn't realize those forms had been dealt with. Jill said she'd done the security checks, and I thought they were okay to process because... Another sentence goes unfinished as she jumps down his throat. He's starting to think there's no point even trying to get her to see aside. Don't you dare try and pass the blame onto Jill. Christ, I don't know how you have the nerve to sit there and say that. I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm just bloody hell, Keith. A team member like Jill is worth ten of you. If you take account of all the rework your mistakes have caused, You're working out at about a third of an effective person a day. You understand that? You were never particularly fast, but your rates per hour right now are pathetic. Most people get quicker the longer they're in a job. You're getting slower. This is no one's fault but yours. You need to start taking some responsibility here. And all Keith can think is, don't talk to me about responsibility. You're not the one who had to change his dad's trousers last night after he pissed himself. You're not the one who has to cook, wash, clean, shop, and do everything else because his old man is so fucked up with booze and remorse that he can barely function. He just thinks all this, of course. Doesn't dare say it. He just listens instead and takes everything she throws at him. Again. I'd put you on a development plan, Gloria continues, barely pausing for breath. But I think we're past that stage now. At the end of the day, your job boils down to simple data entry. It's a piece of piss. You copy what's on the paper onto your screen. How much easier could it be? You have to really try to screw things up as badly as you have. I know. I am sorry. I'll change, Gloria. It won't happen again. That's what you said last time. But I mean it. You said that last time, too. Look, I'm sorry it's had to come to this, Keith. Please, Gloria. Like I said, I thought Jill had done the security checks, and I assumed... Stop trying to blame other people! She screams at him. This was your fuck-up. No one else's. You're the problem here. But you're still trying to blame everyone else. Freaking incredible. Please don't swear at me. Don't swear at you? way I feel right now, I'd hit you if I thought I could get away with it. You're infuriating. You know that? You're a miserable, scruffy, sour-faced little sod. And thanks to you, Mike Parker thinks I can't manage my department because bloody Doreen Phelps went straight to him with a complaint instead of me. Have you got any idea how that makes me look? Keith genuinely feels terrible. Honest, he does. But what can he do? He'd apologize again, but that'd only make things worse. Gloria's exasperated. She's closer now, staring straight at him. He's still looking down at the table, too nervous to look up because he thinks he knows what's coming next. We've reached the end of the road here, Keith, she says, confirming his suspicions. Like I said, we're out of options. No more last chances. I don't want to lose my job. Then maybe you should have thought of that before today, she shouts, immediately angry again. You should have done something the first time I put you on disciplinary, or the second, or the third. Instead, you just sit there, sniveling, feeling sorry for yourself, blaming other people when you screw up. You can work until the end of the month, then you're done here. And don't even bother trying to... Her voice trails off, like she's lost her train of thought. And this time, Keith looks straight at her because he knows something's not right. He looks around, figuring there's someone at the door or some other interruption, but there's nothing. And no one else. Just him, her, and these four gray walls. Gloria swallows, and it hurts. Keith can see the pain etched on her face. She rubs at her throat like she's trying to dislodge something. Then she coughs and tries to talk again. Sorry. I think I need to get- Gloria can't breathe. She's stunned, frightened, fucking terrified. For a few seconds, there's an uncomfortable malaise. Gloria, confused and in increasing pain, Keith just staring at her, helpless. But as the clock ticks, the inside of Gloria's throat starts to swell rapidly, soon blocking her airway. She's suffocating, and there's no immediately obvious reason why. Her air runs out, and then panic. She slams herself back against the wall, legs almost giving way, face flushed and eyes bulging, and as she desperately tries to suck more oxygen in, involuntary muscle spasms force everything back out. She falls forward onto the table, showering everything with splashes of stringy spittle and blood. Keith recoils, shoving his chair back and almost falling himself, then heading for the corner of the room, trying to get as far from his dying manager as he possibly can. Because she is dying, he's already certain of that. He doesn't know what's happening or why, but he knows she doesn't have long and he doesn't know what to do. She falls to the ground with a sickening thud, catching her jaw on the table on the way down, then thumping the back of her head hard against the wall. Keith edges closer. He looks under the table and he can see her body twitching. All arms and legs, a hopeless tangle of limbs. Crimson blood is dribbling from the corner of her mouth, spilling onto her cream blouse and pooling on the terracotta carpet. And then he sees that she's still watching him. She doesn't have any control over her body now, she can't move, can't talk, can't breathe. But her eyes are still following him, silently imploring him to do something, to help her, anything. It's almost a relief when her eyes roll up into her head and her eyelids flicker half-shut. And for a few seconds longer, Keith just standing there like an idiot, thinking pointless, stupid, unhelpful thoughts. The last thing Gloria saw was me. The last thing she saw was me doing nothing to help. Numb with shock, it's almost half a minute later before Keith starts to consider the implications of what just happened. They'll think I did this. He dives through the door, not sure whether he's going to get someone to call an ambulance or just run like hell and try and get as far away from this place as he can before anyone finds Gloria. He hesitates. The meeting room is silent now, and the idea of staying shut away in here with his dead boss is somehow almost preferable to going out there and facing the music. He even considers hiding under the table with her. He'd try the window, but he's seven floors up. Get help or run? In the end, it's academic. He does neither because when Keith eventually goes back through into the main office, what he finds there is even worse than the nightmare he's left behind. He struggles to process what he's seeing, because it's not just Gloria who's dead. It's all of them. He walks through the inexplicable chaos, looking from side to side, stepping over sprawled limbs and avoiding the gaze of frozen faces, which seem to demand answers he can't give. There's no noise now, save for the low electrical hum of the office and the air conditioning whir. Even the phones have stopped ringing. What the hell happened here? Is it going to happen to me? He spins around with a start when he hears something, assuming death's about to creep up on him, too. His pulse is racing, heart thumping like it's going to explode. But it's nothing. Just a pile of those bloody know-your-customer forms which have overbalanced and slipped out of someone's tray and spilled onto the floor. Keith, soon back at his own desk. In some ways, knowing everyone else is dead makes him feel slightly better, because he can't be expected to try and help all of them, can he? It was different when it was just Gloria and him in the meeting room. All the responsibility was his. He doesn't feel so bad about leaving her now. He's still scared. No, no. Not scared. Absolutely fucking terrified. But a little better all the same. He knows he can't stay here. Shelly's on the floor under the desk next door. The phone grasped tight in her death grip. He picks up his jacket off the back of his chair and logs out of his computer like it's the end of his shift or he's just off for lunch. He even signs out on the timesheet by the door. He doesn't know why he does it. It's just instinct, he reckons, force of habit just nerves. After fetching his coat from the cloakroom on 6th, Keith waits on the landing for the lift. Mike Parker, his boss's boss, is dead in a doorway behind him. Keith's thinking, should I be panicking? But he's not. Not yet. It must be shock. He's sure the panic will come in time. He just hopes he can get somewhere safe before he completely loses it. That's if there is anywhere safe anymore. When the lift doors slide open, there's a woman Keith doesn't recognize stuck inside. Her face is pressed up against the mirrored wall, but there's no breath, no condensation. He imagines the power failing and being trapped in this small metal box with just a corpse for company. And he decides to take the stairs instead. The long descent gives him a few more precious seconds to try and get his head around what's happened here. But whatever it is, it's happened everywhere. The world outside the office has just stopped. Frozen in an instant. Keith thinks it's like someone's clicked their fingers and made everyone fall asleep. Like one of those freaky end of the pier hypnotists, but on a massive scale. The traffic is all over the place. It's like the drivers all took their hands off their wheels at the exact same time and just let their vehicles drive until they hit something and stopped. One car has gone right through the window of the pub opposite where Keith works, the place where his colleagues often go for lunchtime drinks. The car's bonnet is almost touching the bar, like it's waiting to be served. Elsewhere, a bus has clipped the curb and is leaning over to one side, resting against the wall of a building like it's had one too many. There's a car on its roof in the middle of the road, and a corresponding hole in the railings of the bridge overhead. There are traces of life seeping away wherever Keith looks. Blood oozes from the cut neck of a man who's gone through the windscreen and died half in and half out of his car. The bonnet of the truck Keith's leaning against for support is still warm. A cash wagon outside a bank is stuck in reverse, engines still running. It emits a shrill alarm, and an automated voice on a loop warns Keith, and only Keith now, that he should use caution. This vehicle is reversing. Keith doesn't have the first idea what's happened here, and right now he has very little desire to find out. He just wants to get home. There's a 29 bus just short of the place where Keith usually catches it, but there's no point in waiting today. It hasn't moved since everything stopped, and it's not going to be going anywhere soon. In a daze, barely even aware of what he's doing, Keith walks the few miles home. Everywhere he goes, he sees corpses. Hundreds of them. Thousands. It's frightening to think how many of them there might be. He tries to imagine all the ones he can't see. He looks at houses, shops, schools, and offices— and pictures them all full of dead people. And in all this time, he never once stops to ask himself, what did this? Or, why not me? He thinks more about why he's avoiding these questions than about the questions themselves. It's because, he decides, it doesn't matter. What difference does it make? His unease is increasing now he's on familiar turf. The closer he gets to home, the more nervous he becomes. He walks down Shenley Fields, past the dental surgery, and makes even more of a concerted effort to ignore the endless bodies lying around here, because he thinks he might know them. Okay, so he might not actually know them, but he'll probably have seen them about. It's the same on Barnes Hill, and again when he finally reaches Ashton Grove. It's as quiet here now as it was just after six this morning when he got up. Maybe even more so. That mangy cat's still about, though. Still hunting for scraps. Appetite undiminished by Armageddon. Because that, Keith decides, is what this is. It watches him from around the corner of next door but one's fence. Keith doesn't much like cats, and they don't much like him. But he calls out to it just the same because it would be nice to have some company. It gets spooked and runs the other way. Gordon's dead. It shouldn't surprise him, but it does. Poor old Gordon. The gentle old chap who lived opposite is lying in his porch in his pajamas, blood everywhere. Keith makes himself look, because for a second he's not sure if the same thing happened to Gordon as everyone else or if he's met some other kind of horrible fate. There's such a lot of blood down his front, crusted over his white stubble. He wonders if he should try and help him, but he knows there's no point. The same goes for the guy sitting dead in his car outside his house. V.J., he thinks his name was, and the young mom with the kid who died coming out of the flats. Keith thinks he hears something, then he calls for that bloody cat again, And he makes himself stop, because he knows these are just delaying tactics. He's just doing what he can to avoid going into the house. The postman has died on Keith's doorstep. He's on his belly, undelivered letters clutched tight. Keith has to drag him out of the way slightly so he can get to his front door. Christ, he's heavy. Keith's had plenty of experience of moving dead weights like this, though. Key in the lock, he pauses and takes a deep breath. He looks around once more, just to convince himself that what he thinks has happened really has happened, then goes indoors. He shuts the door and leans up against it, his eyes adjusting to the dark inside. Dad? Dad? Are you here? It's a stupid question, because Dad's always here. Keith takes two steps further down the hall, then stops. He can see his dad now, and he immediately feels an unexpected sense of relief. He'd got it into his head that he'd find him somewhere, in front of the TV, probably, or in the toilet. But Dad's exactly where he left him this morning, slumped over the kitchen table. Problem is, that was several hours ago. Keith walks into the kitchen, then shakes Dad's shoulder. Is he dead or drunk? it's hard to tell. Dad looks the same. Smells the same. The booze stink masks everything. Dad? Keith remembers the time just after they lost Mom. That time Dad drank all kinds of shit and had to have his stomach pumped. It was like this back then. Cold to the touch, breathing so shallow it could hardly be heard. But Keith knows in his heart that this is different. After everything he's already seen today, how could it not be? And even after everything he's been through with Dad these last few years, after everything that happened and all the damage he did, all that hurt, Keith still holds his father tight and sobs when he finally accepts that he's gone. Keith's head is all over the place. He thinks he's crying for himself more than for Dad. The littlest things frightened Keith most of all today. He didn't even realize the TV had been left on until hours later. It wasn't until he'd been upstairs and changed and was walking past the living room door that he noticed it. The BBC News Channel is like a reflection of the dead world he walked through to get home this morning. A rectangular, screen-sized microcosm. Like everything else, it all looks much the same as it used to, but... Indelibly wrong, changed forever. There's the reassuringly familiar desk and studio set being shot from the usual angle, the morning's headlines continuing to scroll, and the clock in the bottom corner of the screen still keeping perfect time. But the newsreader is dead. All he can see is the top of her perfectly coiffed head and one hand which she must have stretched out over the edge of the desk when it, whatever it was, caught up with her, and ended her life along with everyone else's. Everyone else, except Keith. The longer he's stuck here at home, the more he thinks about the situation and the less sense it makes. Why me? There's no rhyme or reason, and he knows there's no point looking for answers either because he won't get far when there's no one left to ask. Christ, he's asked enough impossible questions over the years and got nothing back but abuse. Why should it be any different today? Keith's social circle has never been particularly wide. In these last few years, he's felt the circumference steadily reducing to little more than a full stop. That feels strangely appropriate today. There's just him left. Period. Still, he does what he can to make contact with the rest of the world, because surely there must be a rest of the world out there somewhere he calls all the numbers in the old family phone book, even some of Mum's friends he hasn't heard from in years, but doesn't get through to anyone. He tries all the contacts in his mobile, his brick, Shelley from work used to call it. Remember Shelley? But doesn't get to speak to anyone. He almost leaves a message after the tone a couple of times, but there doesn't seem to be much point. He knows no one will reply. Things aren't getting any better. Things aren't actually getting any worse, to be fair. But without anyone to talk to or look after, Keith's nervousness is increasing by the hour. More than anything, he wishes he could do something about Dad. Because he keeps seeing him sitting there at the table in his usual pose, and it's freaking him out. But he struggled enough with his booze-addled old man when he was alive. So, tonight, he doesn't think he has any chance moving him. And it is tonight, now. It's getting dark out. Despite the fact that barely anything has happened for hours, not since everything happened first thing, the time has evaporated quickly. Keith's relieved the power still working so he can keep the lights on. It's usually gone off by now in the few horror movies he's seen. He eventually plucks up enough courage to drape a blanket over Dad, then goes upstairs and shuts himself in his room. It was hard enough sleeping before all of this, but tonight it's impossible. Keith lies on his bed, fiddling with an old transistor radio he's had since he was a kid, listening for voices. He gets the occasional bursts of static noise, but not a lot else. Well, what did he expect? If anyone else has survived this, would they really be spending their time broadcasting into the ether in the vain hope someone's listening? He doesn't think so. He thinks they'll be out gathering supplies and banding together with other survivors like they do in the films. Either that, or they'll be hiding in their bedrooms like he is, too scared to do anything else. Maybe I'll try again in the morning. He gets up and goes to the window teasing open the curtains just enough so he can see out. All the other houses are dark, no lights on inside. The street lamps are working, though. He almost wishes they weren't, because the only thing they illuminate are the bodies. Day Two Keith wakes up with a start, lying on top of his bed, fully dressed but freezing cold. He checks his alarm clock and sits up quickly, thinking about work and how he can't afford to be late again after the grief Gloria gave him yesterday. Then he remembers everything else. He perches on the edge of his mattress, wondering if he should look outside or just lie down again and try and get back to sleep. If he stays here in his room, he can pretend none of it happened, can't he? And then the decisions taken out of his hands, because he hears something moving downstairs. No hesitation now. He runs to the landing and peers down. It's Dad. Bloody hell, it's Dad. He's in the hall. Keith can't believe what he's seeing. He watches Dad get all the way to the front door, then he seems to change his mind and turn around, heading back towards the kitchen again, probably looking for his booze or fags or most likely Keith. Keith runs down to see him. They've had their differences, sure, and there have been times Keith wanted to smother him with a pillow in his sleep, but this isn't one of them. Right now, he's just relieved that Dad's okay and he's no longer alone. Dad's in the kitchen now. It's definitely beer he's after. He catches his hip on the corner of the table, no doubt still half-pissed from yesterday, then walks to the sink and stops, unable to go any further. The blinds are closed, and it's dawn-dark in here. Dad? Dad, you okay? Keith asks. For the longest time, just a few seconds, but it feels like forever. Dad doesn't respond. Then he slowly turns around, struggling in the enclosed space, clumsily pirouetting on leaden feet. This lack of grace is nothing unusual. Keith knows he just needs a nicotine or alcohol pick-me-up. Keith flicks on the light to dispel the gloom, and now he's the one who freezes. Dad's still dead. It makes absolutely no sense, and it all sounds ridiculous, but he knows he's right. The old man's face is a death mask, expressionless. His chin and chest are stained scarlet with traces of yesterday's dried-out spittle and blood. Keith panics, and Dad reacts. He seems to come alive when he clocks Keith watching. He throws himself straight at his son. The kitchen table comes to his rescue. Dad collides with it again, and he gives Keith a couple of seconds grace. Numb with shock, he slams the kitchen door in his father's face then feels his father's face slam into the kitchen door. Keith staggers back down the hallway, the house filling with dead dad's noise as he tries to escape his kitchen prison. Not knowing what else to do, Keith runs back upstairs to his room and shuts the door and blocks it with a chest of drawers, hoping the ancient Keep Out or Else sign outside does the trick and keeps his old man at bay. When he opens the curtains to let in more light, What he sees outside is terrifying. Dad's not the only one who's on his feet again. They all are. Apart from George across the way, who can't seem to get up, and the postman who's still on his belly. The rest of them, though, are all mobile. Those same people who spent almost the entire last 24 hours lying on the ground. Those dead people are up and about again. And to make matters worse... One of them has seen him. A tattoo-covered corpse, who worked in security and lived further down Ashton Grove, just happens to look up at the exact wrong moment and makes dead eye contact with Keith at the window. The man immediately changes course, staggering back towards the house now instead of staggering down the road, and others start to follow. What the hell is going on? The death of everyone yesterday was hard enough to handle, but what's happening now is just impossible. Keith pulls the curtains shut and sits under his desk, covering his head with his hands as the dead begin to hammer on the door downstairs. He's out. Shit. Keith knows from the way the noise in the house changed just now that Dad's managed to get out of the kitchen. It's taken a while, but there's no question he's on the loose now. Maybe he just dropped his hand on the handle by chance, or maybe he opened the door intentionally. However it happened, he's roaming free downstairs, and the more noise Dad makes, the more the other dead folks outside seem to react. Keith creeps back to the window and teases the curtain open slightly. Bloody hell. There's a crowd of them there now. There must be more than twenty. What do I do? The simple answer, the easy answer, would be to stay here in his room. But that's not going to help him in the long run. He knows the decision seems about to be taken out of his hands, because he can hear Dad getting closer. He's heard him crawl upstairs in a drunken stupor enough times to recognize the sounds of hands and knees on the staircase. The slips and thumps and groans when he loses his balance. Can't stay here. Keith feels like he's on the top floor of a burning building, the fire climbing fast, the first flames already licking at his feet. He bursts out through his bedroom door and runs straight into Dad, who's coming the other way, almost at the top of the steps. More through luck than judgment, they collide at speed, and Keith manages to send his old man spiraling back down. He watches him fall over and over, eventually clonking his head on the floor at the bottom. And for a second, all the fear disappears, and he's left feeling concerned. I just pushed my dad down the stairs. Shit, he's going to be in so much trouble. But that's the least of his concerns, because the noise and commotion seems to have had two serious side effects. First, dad's getting back up, and he looks angrier than ever. Second, the crowd on the front step is getting riled. Dead hands thump against the door, desperate to get inside. Noise makes noise makes even more noise. It's a vicious circle. The more of a din the dead make, the more noise Dad makes, and vice versa. Keith knows he has to move. He runs down and jumps over Dad's outstretched legs, but trips over one of his feet and hits the deck hard. He's winded and before he can get up and get moving again, Dad grabs hold of him. Keith scrambles to his feet, dragging Dad up with him. Dad's weight shifts unexpectedly, and the two of them collide, glancing heads. Keith shoves him away, and although Dad's brain still maintains a modicum of control, it's like he's operating on a two-second delay, everything working slower than it should. Keith takes advantage of the delay to push him away again but he's pushing him deeper into the house, and he needs to send him the other way. Keith grabs his dad's shoulders once more, then spins him around through 180 degrees. He reaches past his father and snatches at the door handle, pulling the front door wide open. Fuck, bad move. Although all operating on a similar dull delay to dad, a crowd of bodies stand poised to flood into the house. Keith has no time to think, he just runs straight at Dad and shoulder charges him out, managing to shift most of the dead out of the way at the same time and just managing to let go and grab hold of the door frame at the last moment, stopping himself from falling out onto the street with the mass of corpses. Keith reaches out for the handle and pulls it shut, but the door won't close properly. He tries again, the seconds ticking and the bodies approaching, but it's no good there's something in the way. He looks down and sees the postman's outstretched hand in the door jamb, fingers mangled and broken but still moving. What does he do? He helplessly tries to pull the door shut a couple more times, feeling the bones of the postie's hand crunching and breaking every time he does it. But he knows this isn't going to work. The other bodies are really close now, There's an old woman in a blood-stained nightie who's so close he can smell her. Keith screws up his eyes and bends down and lifts the postman's sleeve to swing what's left of his deformed hand out of the way. But it's too little, too late. The dead woman crashes into the house, her unsteady progress accelerated by the impact of several more dead things which collide with her from behind. And then there's Dad. Whether he knows what he's doing or not is debatable and irrelevant. Like it or not, he's coming home. More precisely, he's coming for Keith, and Keith knows it. He backs away down the hallway, desperate to keep some distance between him and them. He glances at the staircase, but immediately dismisses that idea, because he knows if he goes back up there, he won't be coming down again. The ground floor of the house is rapidly filling, and he knows if he goes up, so will they. It's the same with the lounge. One way in, no obvious way out. There are so many of them now that they're fighting to get inside, literally pushing each other out of the way to get to him, but the woman in the 90s is at the very front of the queue. She raises her arms in a classic undead pose, and he catches her hands and tries to push her back the other way. She glares at him with cold, milky eyes and opens her mouth wide, brown drool trickling down her chin, dripping all over her already stained nightwear. Keith knows he has to go if he wants to stay alive, and he also knows there's every chance if he leaves here now, he won't be coming back. Of all the horrific things that have happened over the last 24 hours, leaving home hurts most of all. He's never lived anywhere but here. Some would say he's never lived. He forces the dead woman back the other way, recoiling from the feel of her cold, pudgy, putty-like flesh, then slips the clutches of another dead pensioner and runs into the kitchen. He shuts the door and drags the table across to try and block it, then pauses. Am I sure about this? When the weight of dead flesh in the hall manages to force the door open slightly, shunting the table back across the kitchen floor, Keith knows he has no choice. He lets himself out through the back door. It's pissing down with rain. He runs down the garden, his trousers and trainers soaked from the overgrown wet grass. One last look back at the house, one final chance to remember. Then he's gone. He slips out through the back gate and creeps along the alleyway to the main road. Then he stops again. Shit. There are more of them here. Not crowds of hundreds or anything like that, but more than enough all the same. He watches them. They obviously don't yet know he's here. They're milling around like slow-moving, fidgeting kids who can't keep still. He tries to plot a route through them, because he can't stay here all day, can he? But on the other hand, what else is he going to do? Where can he go? It's only now that the full enormity of what happened here is starting to sink in. How widespread is this problem? He wonders if he might be able to find someone in charge, some authorities or military types to take him somewhere safe, along with all the other survivors, because there must be other survivors, right? The fact he's heard nothing and seen no one doesn't give him much hope. For the second time in less than 24 hours, his world has been completely turned on its head. He stands there, getting soaked by the freezing rain, and trying and failing to make sense of everything. "'So let's get this straight,' he says to himself. "'Everyone died yesterday. "'Now they're still dead, but walking around, "'and I've just lost my house and everything in it.'" Things are going from bad to worse. Keith sighs with resignation and leans back against the fence, and part of it that's been recently patched up gives way. He shifts with a start, figuring the whole fence is about to go over, and his sudden panicked noise and movement is enough to alert all of the dead in the immediate vicinity to his position. They definitely know he's here now. For a half-second, he remains completely still, wondering if inactivity will be enough to fool them into thinking they were wrong. But it's clear it won't. They're already homing in on him from all directions. 20-odd random trajectories all converging on him. He looks the other way and sees more of them coming along the alleyway towards him from behind the houses near his. And Keith knows all he can do now is run. And he runs and runs, too afraid to stop. He knows his way around this area well. It's the only place he's ever lived. But good local knowledge doesn't make a whole lot of difference this morning because the panic and the fear and the persistent heavy rain combine to leave him virtually blind. He's not planning on trying to get to anywhere specific right now. He's just trying to get away from them. Trouble is, they're everywhere. All of the bodies he walked past yesterday are mobile again, and every last one of them, without fail, turns and lumbers towards him when he gets anywhere close. It doesn't matter where he goes or how fast he runs— He knows there will be more of them waiting for him wherever he ends up. Past the end of the road his junior school was on. Can't go there. Then along the road where Craig, his mate from Cubs, used to live. Past the house where Mum's friend Margaret lived. Wait, was that dead Margaret at the window? And now Keith's going round in circles. A series of right-hand turns, and he's heading back towards home again now. And as much as he'd love to go back there, he knows he can't. The smell of death out here is getting worse. The rain amplifying the stink. He's taking in deep breaths, and he doesn't know how much longer he can keep this up. He hasn't had to run like this for a long time. He's already tired, and he has a killer stitch. He's going to have to stop soon. But he can't. They won't let him. As long as he keeps moving, he'll just about be okay. He's not particularly fast, it's just that they're particularly slow. They don't seem to see him until it's almost too late, and he's virtually on top of them. But as soon as they realize he's there, they attack. They swing their fists, swiping at the air with clumsy hands, then stumbling after him in slow-motion pursuit. He can't be completely alone, can he? He glances up at some of the places he runs past, hoping he'll see someone else. Someone who will shout down to him and help. There are plenty of faces at the windows, but they're all dead. All trying to get out. The shops. It comes to him in an instant. Why didn't I think of it before? It's the sensible place to go. If there are any other survivors, surely they'll head there, too? Just a little further now. He takes a corner at speed, reinvigorated momentarily and runs headfirst into a bunch of them lumbering in the opposite direction. He's on his back in a puddle in the gutter before he knows what's happening, and they're on top of him before he can do anything about it. But they're so lethargic and useless that they can't coordinate themselves well enough to attack. They simply pile on, one after the other, like they're playing some stupid playground game. And the weight and the bulk of those falling on top prevents those closest to him at the bottom of the heap from doing any real damage. With a little kicking and squirming, Keith's able to wriggle free and crawl out from under the scrum, sick with the stench of the dead things, leaving them all behind. The effort is almost impossible to sustain now, but he keeps moving because he doesn't have any choice. Another sharp corner. This time he stops and checks. He has a few seconds of breathing space, just a few, but it's just enough. He peers around the end of the wall and sees clear passage to the supermarket he knows well. It's where he gets his dinners and dad's booze. The building and the precinct in front of it are an ugly slice of abrasive, angular 1970s concrete design. But right now it looks like the most beautiful place on Earth. One last push, one final burst, and he'll be inside. He pushes away from the wall and runs, aware of shapes closing in on him from all angles, then smacks into the automatic sliding glass doors. Not so automatic this morning. Not sliding, either. Keith looks back and sees hordes of the dead advancing towards him. No surprise. Half of him thinks, I should just give up and let them have me. The other half thinks, Shit. I'm too scared to die. He digs the tips of his fingers into the metal groove between the two halves of the non-automatic doors, hoping to prise them apart. He doesn't want to look, but he can see the mirror images of the rapidly approaching bodies in the glass, four or five of them at least, the reflections looming large. He knows there will undoubtedly be more if this takes much longer. With a hard shove and a grunt of effort, He manages to force his fingers between the doors. Another shove, and the two halves judder, then separate by a couple of inches. Just enough for him to get his right arm through. And once his arm and one shoulder's in, he uses the bulk of his body to open the door enough so he can slip through. And he's in. The doors are on some kind of resistive mechanism, because the moment he's made it to the other side, they slide shut again like a snapping monster's maw but not before one of the dead is almost able to follow. The corpse of a lanky, long-haired guy who looks a little younger than Keith is trapped now, head, shoulder, and one arm inside, everything else left out in the rain. Thankfully, it doesn't have the strength to do anything about its predicament. It constantly stretches and strains to reach Keith, but he's standing just out of range and there's nothing it can do. Still panting hard with the effort of the run and the terror of the moment, Keith slides down the wall and sits there on the floor looking up at the dead kid, motionless. He has a grandstand view now, as more of the creatures begin to crash into the glass, still trying to get to him as if they're unaware there's anything to stop them. In the space of a couple of minutes, there are so many of them that almost all the visible light has been blocked out. It's like someone's drawn the curtains. It's all too easy to slip back into routine in a place like this. Keith casually pushes a trolley around the supermarket like he does a couple of times most weeks, looking for all the things he usually buys. The power's down here. He doesn't know if it's just this store that's affected or if it's more widespread. That explains the problem he had getting inside, he thinks. It's strange being in here without the lights on. Alien. It doesn't look right. It's usually so bright and unforgiving. Banners advertising this deal and that deal. Buy one, get one free. Lowest prices guaranteed. That kind of thing. It doesn't matter, because everything's free today, he realizes as he fills the trolley with cans of food, bottles of drink, and other stuff. He doesn't know what he's going to do with it all, mind. He has nowhere to take his shopping. Maybe he'll just stay here for a while longer and build himself a nest. Oh, but it's great to be distracted. He's had so much time to think about since yesterday, so much crap spinning around inside his head, that to switch off like this momentarily is bliss. He's no closer to understanding any of what's happened, no closer to knowing what's going to happen next. But right now, none of that's as important as clearing his mind and finding some guilt-free and pressure-free headspace. As long as he focuses on the interior of the store and doesn't look outside, he's okay. He's not felt like eating much since yesterday, but he's suddenly aware that his stomach's growling angrily. He takes a bag of his favorite crisps from a shelf and shovels the contents into his mouth, then eats another washing the snacks down with a bottle of Coke. Then chocolate. Then cakes. Honestly, there's so much stuff in here he'd happily eat. Okay, so a lot of it will go off soon, but there's plenty that'll stay good for a while longer yet. At the back of his mind are a few dark thoughts. What happens when all the supermarket shelves are clear? Will I have to pay for all this? But he manages to keep them at bay with more food. Christ, having this much personal space is a novelty. It's been a long time. He stops near a wall display of paperback books. Keith's always loved reading. He's just never had the time. Maybe that'll change now, now that Dad... No matter what he thought of his old man, he can't yet bring himself to reach that sentence's inevitable end. Can't believe he's gone. Has he gone? Another thought strikes Keith now and he wonders whether this is just a shock-induced sugar rush, he finds himself wondering if what happened to the rest of the world really has happened, or if it's just him. Is he the only one who's changed? It all seems so preposterous, so far-fetched. I mean, zombies, for fuck's sake. Zombies. He feels stupid just thinking the word. Most of the books he's looking at are easy-reading, mass-market titles which sell by the bucket load. This stuff has never really appealed, but there's a first time for everything, isn't there? He avoids the thrillers and the crime novels and picks up a slice of cliché-filled chick lit instead. More because of the nice-looking girl in the cover than for any other reason. He flicks through the pages and stops at a sex scene, eyes wide. Bloody hell, he had no idea they wrote books like this. It's pretty much just text-based porn. Then he turns his attention to a fashion magazine and ogles the scantily-clad, photoshopped models adorning the glossy pages. This feels so wrong. Inappropriate, even, given what's happened to the rest of the world. But in the absence of everybody else but him? Who cares? The dead checkout girl comes at him from out of nowhere. She knocks him flying, smashes him against the side of a rapidly defrosting freezer— then grabs hold of him with her cold, dead hands and drags him down. He's on his back in a puddle of water with her on top, seeping blood and gunk all over him. She forces a fistful of icy fingers into his mouth, like she's trying to pull explanations out from his innards. He's gagging on the taste of her rotting flesh. He can't breathe, can barely move. He tries to fight, but all he can see is her, The familiar green and white of her uniform is stained with discharge. He thinks, This is it. I'm dead. And he struggles to get a grip of the reanimated corpse now on top of him, but the frigging thing won't keep still. I'm fucked. I blew it. I'm history. And then she's gone. She's lying alongside him now, on her back but still thrashing wildly. He ducks for cover, rolling away to one side as someone swings an aluminum baseball bat through the air and splits the dead girl's face in two. Keith's too scared to look up, curled into a fetal position on the wet floor, gasping for breath and stinking of death, figuring he's next. He pictures the killer, but everything he imagines is wrong. He thinks he's going to be facing some huge muscle-bound motherfucker, all attitude and swagger but he's not. He hears the baseball bat clatter as it's dropped to the ground and dares to look. Standing over him is a young girl. She's short and pretty, wearing the latest gear, hair all tied up nice, wearing loads of makeup and chewing gum at speed. But all of this is irrelevant because all Keith can focus on is the pistol she's pointing into his face. The end of it is wavering, probably because of the weight, not because she's nervous. She looks cool as anything. Don't move a fucking muscle, she says. He won't. I'm not dead. Prove it. I'm talking to you, aren't I? She thinks it through. He has a point. She waves the barrel of the gun like she's seen them do in the movies, gesturing for him to get up. He starts to move, but slips in the blood and water. When he looks down, he sees he's put his hand in a puddle of something that's spilling from a crack in the dead checkout girl's face. Between the gore and the smell and the defrosting food and the nerves, he can't take it. He drags himself up onto his feet, then leans over and empties the freshly filled contents of his stomach into one of the freezers, adding to the fetid stink. Nice, she says watching as he wipes stringy spit and vomit from his mouth with the back of his sleeve. Guess that proves it. She looks him up and down, disparagingly. What's your name? Keith. I'm Anna. Do you know what's happened? No. You? He just shakes his head. There's an awkward few moments of silence. Then she starts to walk away. Wait, he says. What? Where are you going? Home, she says like that's the dumbest question she's ever been asked. She keeps walking. Wait, he says again, and she reluctantly does. You're the first person I've seen. Don't you think we should stick together? Anna gestures for him to follow her, and he does. She takes him back to the front of the store and gestures at the dead horde still packed tight against the glass. You did that, she says. Fucking amateur. I know, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. They were chasing me, and I can't afford to take chances, can't afford to get stuck with someone who can't look after themselves. It won't happen again. Not until next time. She walks back into the supermarket, aware he's still following. She can understand why he'd want to stick with her, but she's struggling to think of any good reasons why she should stick with him. She leaves him standing over another body that's had its head caved in with the baseball bat. I really think we should stay together, he shouts after her. It makes sense. Safety in numbers and all that. I've got a gun and a baseball bat, she tells him. Can't see how having you hanging around is going to make me any safer. I can cook, he says, clutching at straws. I've bagged up loads of stuff back there. You keep us safe, I'll keep us fed. She thinks about it. It's a decent offer. She's been too busy trying to stay alive to think about food. Keith edges closer, not wanting to let go of the one fellow survivor he's so far found. He thinks he needs to stick with this girl. He thinks she can handle herself. "'Suppose it's worth a try,' she says, and the relief on his face is visible. "'You do what I say, though, right?' "'Right. "'I don't reckon you'd last long on your own, anyway.' They slip out of the back of the supermarket. Anna leads. Keith follows, overloaded with stolen shopping packed into those heavy-duty, bag-for-life carrier bags they have at the tills. She thinks that's really funny in the circumstances, but Keith doesn't appreciate the joke. He steps out, but she gestures for him to wait. Too many of them. They press themselves back against the wall. As long as they stay still, they're ignored the handle snaps on one of the bags Keith's carrying, sending tins of food rolling everywhere. The noise isn't bad, but with the rest of the world so quiet, it sounds as loud as thunder. He instinctively starts trying to pick everything up, making even more noise, but she pulls him back. They can hear us, she whispers. Ain't you worked it out yet? Keith's so scared he can hardly breathe. He's happy to do whatever this girl tells him because he's fucking terrified and she clearly knows what she's doing. He thinks she must know far more about what happened than he does because she clearly gets it. She knows what to do, what to say, how to act. She called him a fucking amateur a few minutes ago and he thinks she was right. The crowds are thinning out again. You ready? He tries to answer but can't. He just nods. Follow me, then, she says. And he does, because right now, not following her would probably be the stupidest thing he could do. She moves like a pro, sprinting across empty spaces when gaps appear in the lifeless multitudes, ducking down and weaving between bodies which are moving in different directions, holding back when too many of them get too close. He's already breathless and soaked with sweat, but she still looks perfect cool as fuck, with the pistol held ready at her side. "'Where'd you get the gun?' he asks when they stop again and crouch behind a wall of wheelie bins full of garden waste. "'Found it.' "'Where? You don't just find something like that.' "'Dead policeman. You're kidding me. Do I look like I'm kidding?' "'Didn't think police carried guns around here.' "'Well, this one did. You know how to use it? "'It's a gun. You pull the trigger. Jeez. Got any bullets?' Got plenty. Now shut up. Sorry. Remember, move slow like them. They don't see you as good if you move like them. Okay. They creep along the front of a row of houses together. Keith knows this area well. Home's not far, but he keeps having to remind himself that home's not home anymore. He used to walk this way back from work sometimes. Funny how it looks like it used to, but feels completely different. He feels nervous like he shouldn't be here, like he's trespassing. Anna starts down an alleyway, but he's not sure. Wait. What's the problem? There's nothing much down there. This just goes to the park. I know. He follows her again, and the unexpected isolation they find within the alley is welcome. Tall fences on either side form a shield, and the curve of the pathway means that, for a while at least, They can't see the beginning or the end of the passage. Keith decides he'd be happy to just stay here, but Anna's got other ideas. When they reach the end, she looks up and down the street, then runs out into the open. It's a twenty-meter or so dash to the park gates, and Keith's left with no option but to run after her. There are even more bodies here, all converging in the way they inevitably do now but Keith and Anna have relative strength and speed on their side. Anna reaches the wide, gray metal park gates and slides the bolt across. Then she waits. What are you doing? Keith asks, nervous. He's standing right behind her, arms aching, still overloaded with looted supplies. He looks back over his shoulder and sees the nearest of the dead things are just a few meters away, and the gap's closing. Anna's toying with him now, enjoying herself. She keeps him waiting a few seconds longer, just that little bit too long, then opens the gate and pushes him through the gap. They're so close, Keith swears he can feel the tips of dead fingers brush down his back. He goes further into the park, then stops when he realizes Anna hasn't yet followed. He puts down his many bags and turns back to look for her. The gate's closed again now, and she's standing on the right side of the barrier, just out of reach of the dead. They clatter repeatedly against the metal, a forest of arms reaching through the many gaps for her. She soaks it all up, like she's getting some kind of perverse pleasure from the adulation of the crowd. Keith hasn't been to this place for years, even though it's less than a mile from home. He used to come here all the time with his mates after school. They'd spend virtually the whole of the summer holidays here, building dens amongst the trees, and kicking their way through the meandering stream which cuts the park in two. He reckons the park is about a mile wide, its perimeter probably about three miles. There's a long, straight path which runs down into its heart. And not a lot else. In all this time, it's hardly changed. Anna brushes past and picks up a couple of bags, leaving Keith with the bulk of them to carry. He picks everything up, struggling with the weight and the awkward bulk of it all, then runs to catch up. Why here? Why not? I could give you a hundred reasons. There's nothing here, for starters. She stops again and just looks at him. Ain't that the best reason of all? But Keith's wrong. The park isn't completely empty. Christ, he probably walked this way a thousand times before and never noticed. Right at the very heart of the place, at the central point where all the footpaths converge, is a house a tiny little bungalow, easily accessible, yet hidden from prying eyes by thoughtfully planted trees. He assumes it's where the park keeper, back when they used to have park keepers, used to live. There can't have been anyone staying here for years. Anna opens the door and goes inside. What do you reckon, she says proudly. Keith's not sure. He stands in the doorway and looks around, his eyes adjusting to the dark. The place is so small he can pretty much take a full guided tour just standing in one spot. One large room. It looks like it was last decorated about thirty years ago, and it smells damp. There are black marks on the walls, wallpaper curled and peeling. The council must have been using it for storage since the last park he moved out, because there are tools and chemicals and all kinds of other stuff stockpiled in the little galley kitchen. Keith dumps the bag of food in the only space he can find. Anna's clearly made herself at home here. There's a space she's claimed as her own directly under one of the windows in the living area. There's a sleeping bag and a pillow on the floor, and some rubbish lying scattered around. Junk food wrappers, a few empty drink cans, a couple of magazines. She sits on her bed and leans back against the wall and looks at him. He's still standing in the doorway like a spare part dripping with rain he doesn't know what to do with himself don't say a lot do you he tries to talk but he can't it's too much now that they've finally stopped running and panicking now that there aren't any dead bodies immediately hounding them the inexplicable reality and sheer helplessness of his situation is beginning to bite hard his lips starts to quiver and the more he tries to hold his emotions in, the harder it gets. He's standing there in front of her now, a grown man, crying like a little kid. She shakes her head and opens a can of cider. I don't, Keith starts to say. I don't know. But the rest of his words remain unspoken. Anna, looking embarrassed, remembers the stash of food they brought back from the supermarket. She starts mooching through the nearest bag. I'm friggin' starving, I am, she says. I'd kill for a KFC. Dad's dead. What am I gonna do? He asks. She just looks at him, then tears open a packet of biscuits with her teeth. They're all dead. Cryin' ain't gonna bring any of them back. Despite everything, by late afternoon, things are starting to feel almost normal as normal as they can be after an inexplicable cataclysmic event, as normal as they can be when you find yourself sharing an abandoned house in a municipal park with a total stranger. Keith mumbles something about trying to get a fire started, and he goes out to fetch wood. The rain's finally stopped. Keith finds a wheelbarrow around the side of the bungalow, and he pushes it toward the trees. The ground is boggy and soft, and it frequently gets stuck. Once there, he starts picking up fallen sticks and branches, much of it too wet to burn. Anna turns up a few minutes later. She drops a log into the wheelbarrow, and a sudden noise makes Keith's heart skip a beat. He didn't know she was there. Bloody hell, what are you doing? Calm down, she tells him. fuck's sake. Don't creep up on me like that, then. I wasn't creeping up. It's you what wasn't listening. I said you were a fucking amateur. Keith takes Anna's log out of the barrow and throws it back into the undergrowth. Too big, he explains. And it's wet. It'll never burn. What, you a scout or something? Used to be. She sniggers, and he ignores her. It doesn't take long to fill the barrow between them, though the work ratio is about 70% in Keith's favor. We need to get this stuff dry, he tells her. And we should sort it, too. Different thicknesses. Anna's not listening. She's leaning against a tree, watching him. So where was you? What? When it happened? When they all started dying? Where was you? At work, he tells her. And for a moment, he allows himself to dwell on a succession of horrific memories he's consciously blocked out until now. Gloria? All the people he used to work with? The neighbors? Dad? Dad? Fortunately, she's making enough noise and talking enough crap to distract him again. I slept through it, she says. Bad, eh? I'd been out drinking. Can't remember what time I stopped, and when I woke up, everyone was dead. You slept through the end of the world? She laughs. I know. It's mad, isn't it? It's all mad. He starts pushing the barrel back towards the bungalow, grunting when the wheel sticks in the mud again. "'Anyway,' Anna says. "'Who said anything about the end of the world? "'I'm still here. You're still here. "'How can it be the end of the world if us two are still alive?' "'She has a point, of sorts. "'He doesn't want to labor it, but she clearly does. "'You can't tell me you've never dreamed of something like this? "'About having the whole world to yourself? "'Maybe, but we haven't got the whole world to ourselves, have we?' He gestures up towards the park gate at the top of the hill. Even now, several hours later, there's still a sizable crowd of bodies gathered there. Anna opens the bungalow door, and Keith tries to get the wheelbarrow inside. It's tight. It should just about fit through if he gets it square on, but he's having trouble bumping the wheel up the step. He reverses a little and tries again, but doesn't hit it quite right and smacks the doorframe. He has another go, but still can't do it. Come on, Anna says, cold and bored and tired of waiting. Get a bloody move on. He has another attempt and almost gets the barrow inside. He glances back over his shoulder when Anna starts moaning again, and he panics. There's a body. It's close. Where the hell did it come from? Anna can tell from his face that there's something wrong, but by the time she turns around to look... The dead man is already upon her. He tries to grab her shoulders, but does little more than shove her forwards instead, and she smashes face first into the outside wall of the bungalow. She manages to turn around and locks her arms to stop the creature getting any closer. Heavy and aggressive the corpse might be, but the dead aren't particularly strong, and she easily holds him back. The dead man squirms and shifts constantly, and as his head swings from side to side, She sees Keith waiting behind, watching anxiously. Do something, you fucking idiot, she yells at him. But he can't. He's paralyzed with fear again, not knowing how to react, not sure if he can. He goes to grab the dead man, then bottles it at the last second. He can't bring himself to make contact with his dead flesh. It turns his stomach. Unnaturally colored and cold, broken veins and bruises. Swellings where the lack of circulation has allowed blood to pool rather than pump. Anna's getting tired. The dead man isn't. She catches Keith's eye again. Fucking do something, you prick! Deep breath. He puts a hand on each of the dead man's shoulders and pulls him back. His rotting brain can't keep up with his legs and they buckle beneath him. He's lying in an overgrown flower bed now still trying to fight, still looking for Anna, and she's fucking furious. She doesn't stop to think. She just stamps on his upturned face again and again. Keith gags at the sound of crunching bone, and then again at the sight of black blood and mucus and Christ knows what else. Anna's still stamping, but enough damage has already been done. The dead man is dead again. Panting with anger and effort, She turns her frustrations on Keith. I'm sorry, he mumbles. I didn't know what to do. I just... How hard can it be? They're already dead, you fucking idiot. She pushes him out of the way and goes inside, stopping long enough to hurl a couple more insults in his direction. You're absolutely fucking useless. How did I end up getting stuck with a loser like you? It's dark now. Late. They're not sure how late, but it doesn't matter. It's only been a day and a half since the end of the world, but their old routines are already redundant. It didn't take long, Keith thinks, and he remembers all the years he was a slave to his watch. He's managed to find enough dry wood to build a fire in the hearth. Anna wouldn't let him use any of her magazines to get it started. So he had to use the lit paper bag he picked up at the supermarket it's a pity. He was looking forward to reading that. He's cooking some of the food they collected this morning. Was it really only this morning? Feels like a lifetime ago. Desperately trying to make amends for his pitiful performance earlier. The warmth, the light, and the crackle and pop of the flames helps them both to relax a little. Keith's got a tin of beans on the boil in the embers, and he's found some meatballs. You got a can opener? He asks. Nope. Great. This stuff's useless if we can't get into any of it. We can get one. I'll start a shopping list, shall I? Don't take the piss. I'm not. I'm serious. He abandons the idea of meatballs and finds something else to cook instead. He's hungry now. Really hungry. And he can tell by the way Anna's been edging closer and closer that she is, too. She looks younger in the dancing light. Her hair's all messed up now, her lipstick faded. Never liked meatballs anyway, she says. You know what they make them from? Trick question? Meat? He answers rhetorically. Yeah, but do you know what kind of meat? It's all the spare stuff. All the bits no one wanted. All the guts and innards. Bullocks and all that. Is that right? Yeah, I saw it online, and I saw this photo on Facebook once of a loaf of bread that had a dead mouse in the middle of it. You see that, Keith? It was disgusting. Keith just looks at her and shakes his head. He hopes she'll take note of his lack of response and be quiet for a while, but she's too busy talking to care. It's good not having nothing to do, isn't it? She says. I mean, I never done a lot anyway, but now I can do whatever I want. I can go anywhere, do anything. Christ, she's annoying. Don't you ever stop. Just listen to yourself, Anna. The rest of the world is dead out there, in case you hadn't noticed. (sighs) Of course I noticed. Doesn't it matter to you? She shrugs. Not really. Not really, he repeats, barely able to believe what he's hearing. Not really? What kind of a heartless bitch are you? She just shrugs again. Can't help it. My dad's dead. Everyone's dead. I'm not, she says. You're not. Might as well be. Go and kill yourself, then, miserable prick. You're not interested in anyone but yourself, are you? He asks, and he takes her lack of response as a resounding no. Have you thought about the implications of what's happened? What happens when we run out of food? What happens if there are more of those things out there and they get more aggressive? What happens if one of us gets sick or if we both get ill because of all the germs and flies when they start rotting? What happens when... Give it a rest, she shouts, interrupting angrily. No point worrying about any of that shit till it happens. You're so bloody naive. You scare me. I done all right so far, she mumbles. Keith stirs the beans with a spoon then picks up the hot can with a pair of pliers and empties it into two bowls. He starts eating, but he's not as hungry as he thought he was. He's not hungry at all, actually. It's like one of them films, Anna says. What are you on about now? Them zombie movies. It's like one of them. Is it? Yeah, Dawn of the Dead and all that. You see it? She looks at him, but doesn't get any reaction. Come on, there's two versions of it. You must have seen it. Nope. Night of the Living Dead, then? That's the first one. It was black and white. I seen it online. I don't have a computer. No computer? What, was your dad a pedo or something? Keith instinctively jumps to Dad's defense. He's got a drink problem, that's all. He's not a pedo. What about your mom? A pause, then. She's been gone a few years. Had enough of the drink? Another pause, then he forces an answer. Something like that. He tries steering the conversation back into safer waters. What about that other film, 28 Days Later, was it? Something like that? Oh, man, she says, more animated. Scared the shit out of me, that did. You see it? No. Anyway, there weren't even dead in 28 Days Later. Just sick. I checked enough of them bodies outside to know they was all dead. I thought they was, anyway. Mention of the bodies gets Keith thinking again, and he starts to doubt himself. Sitting in here with Anna, isolated from everything else, the things he's seen since this all started seem impossible. They can't be dead. How can they be moving if they're dead? He didn't mean to ask the question out loud. Don't know, she answers. It don't make any sense. Maybe they're not dead. Maybe they're just sick. I should go home tomorrow and try to find Dad, and then... Don't be a dick, she interrupts. Like I said, it don't make any sense, but that's just how it is. Keith wipes more tears from his face, hoping she'll think it's just the smoke from the fire getting in his eyes. He clears his throat. What about I Am Legend? That the one with Will Smith and his dog? Kind of. I didn't like it. You see it? No. I read the book, though. People say books is always better than films, but I like films more. I get bored reading books. He just looks at her and smiles to himself. Anyway, I Am Legend is about vampires, not zombies. Anna laughs out loud. Almost too loud. The noise makes Keith feel uncomfortable, but she can't stop. She's rolling around the place, bean juice dribbling down her chin. Vampires? Now that's just stupid. When she's finally quiet again, and it takes a few minutes for her to fully calm down, Keith summons up enough courage to ask the question that's been on his mind since he first got here. What are we going to do? She's got her answer ready. She switches straight back from dizzy kid to apocalypse survivalist mode in a heartbeat, her face deadly serious. We're going to stay here. We're going to sit this out. Sit what out? Things aren't going to get any better. Christ, everyone died yesterday. Do you seriously think things are going to improve? We'll be okay. You and me. I'll keep us safe. You look after the dinners, right? She grins, but she's semi-serious. We'll be alright here. We're safe from everything else. Yeah, but isolation's not always a good thing, is it? It is from where I'm sitting. I'm not so sure I am. Like I said, we're safer here than out on the streets or in your house, ain't we? But we're still close enough so they'll find us when help arrives. You think anyone's going to come and help us? Wouldn't they have been here already? No, I reckon we're all that's left. We can't be, she says. But she doesn't have anything with which to back her statement up, and she knows it. Day 3 It's barely even morning, but Keith's already up and about. He's never been one for sleeping in, and right now he's finding it impossible to sleep at all. He was just getting comfortable after hours tossing and turning on the floor, when his bladder started to ache. It's taken him another hour to pluck up the courage to do it, but he's finally outside the bungalow now, looking for a decent-sized tree to pee up. That's just about all there is in this place, trees and grass. When he looks around, he finds it hard to believe this little oasis of greenery existed so close to where he lives, where he used to live. The fading darkness blurs the detail of everything outside the immediate area. From here, Keith can see very few signs of the outside world, a few gray rooftops, a couple of electricity pylons, and a huge block of flats which rears up out of nowhere on the outermost edge of the parkland. The relief when he finally starts to go is immense. He leans against the old tree trunk with his free hand as he empties his bladder. He's concentrating so hard on the steaming stream that he doesn't hear the uneven, squelching footsteps behind him, nor the rustle of branches as one of the dead tramples through the undergrowth to get to him. He shakes himself dry and turns around just as the hideous thing lurches at him, arms outstretched in a cliched ghoul pose. Its face is terrifying in the half-light, skin dry and eyes bulging, mouth gaping open. Fuck! The ground is sodden after yet another heavy downpour during the night, and Keith's over on his backside looking up before he knows what's happening. He shouts for Anna, but she's either still asleep or she's got her headphones in because she's not coming. He tries to back away from the advancing cadaver, hands and feet slipping in the mud, unable to get any traction, all the time still screaming out for help. She's not coming. Now you know how I felt, he imagines her telling him, thinking back to how useless he was when that body came at her yesterday after they'd been collecting wood. The corpse has a nightmarish appearance. It's still recognizably male, still recognizably human, but the certainty is beginning to fade. Its skin is slipping like loose-fitting clothing. Saggy jowls and dark bags under its eyes. It's leaking. Keith can't tell if it's rainwater, blood, or something else entirely but with each lurching step it takes towards him, something liquid dribbles from an open wound under its gut. You're on your own, Keith. He looks around and sees there's another one coming. Knowing he's dead if he doesn't do something fast, he reaches out and uses a sapling tree to haul himself upright, then runs at the first body. He drops his shoulder and charges into it, screwing up his face at the thought of what he's about to collide with. Well, he didn't expect that. Either he doesn't know his own strength, or he's underestimated the weakness of the dead body, because the damn thing is near folded in two and sent flying by the force of impact. It skids along the ground, rolling over and over, and then, when it tries to right itself again, one foot slips down the steep and greasy bank of the stream. The corpse can't get its balance. It falls backwards, toppling into the water with an unnatural lack of noise, Sure, there's a splash and a little thrashing, but no screams, no cries, no protest. Keith walks forward and peers down, watching it flounder in six inches of murky water. If these things are so helpless, why am I so scared? But there's no doubt he is still scared, because when the other one starts getting close, he turns tail and sprints back towards the bungalow. Anna's half-dressed when he gets inside. Her top's off everything on show. She starts to cover herself up, then thinks, what the hell? Keith seems more embarrassed than she is. He looks away fast, then remembers the danger outside, and quickly closes the door. He leans against the wall and peers around the edge of the window. What was all the shouting about? Jesus, Keith, she laughs. Look at the state of you. It must have seen me. You was in the middle of a park having to piss up a tree it saw you. You were watching, and you didn't come and help? Didn't you hear me shouting? They heard you, I know that much. Shit, there are two more of them now. The corpse of an overweight woman, half wearing a bright red raincoat, half dragging it behind her, is heading straight for the bungalow. Anna, fully dressed now, is standing at the window in plain view. Keith tries to drag her away, but she angrily snatches her arm from his grip. Fuck off. Get your fucking hands off me. Get down. Get out of sight. Why? Because she'll see you. That's why. The dead woman's definitely picking up speed now. She already has, I reckon. Heath spotted another one. Number four. It's harder to make out than the others because it's dressed in brown and black and they're starting to decay now, their skin turning a putrid gray tone. They're blending into the background blending in to one another. It's like a kind of camouflage. "'I thought you said the park was safe. I thought you said you locked all the gates.' "'All the gates I could find,' she answers. "'What's that supposed to mean?' "'What do you think? It's a park, dummy. There's bushes and trees everywhere. There was always going to be a few gaps where they might get through.' "'So what do we do?' "'Shut up and stop panicking?' "'I'm serious.' So am I. Jesus, Keith, you're like a bloody old woman. The female corpse, half-dragging the red coat, smacks into the side of the bungalow. Her head rocks back on her shoulders with the force of impact, and she butts the window with the ensuing recoil, leaving a greasy smear the way birds do when they fly into patio doors at speed. It's enough to make her stagger back a few paces. Now it's Anna's turn to grab Keith. She pulls him down, and they sit together on her bed beneath the window. All we need to do is stay quiet, she tells him, whispering now. It's easy. Just keep your voice down, stop crying like a girl, whenever they get close, and they'll bugger off and leave us alone. And you reckon it's that simple, do you? I know it is. He does what she says for as long as he can stand. But within a few minutes, nerves have got the better of him, and he's up on his knees, peering over the top of the windowsill. They're going, he says, surprised, watching the corpses stagger away. Told you, didn't I? Keith stands and starts nervously pacing the room. I think we need to go, he announces. Find somewhere better to stay, somewhere safer. You can if you want. I'm staying here. But we're too isolated here. We need to find out what's happening to the rest of the world and... There's fuck all happening to the rest of the world, he tells him, voice firm more serious. We are the rest of the world now, in case you ain't noticed. But don't you think... Just trust me. Trust you? I don't even know you. I don't know anything about you. So? Does it matter? I don't know nothing about you, either. I don't know about your pedo dad, or if you're a pedo. Piss off. Point is, it doesn't matter now. Who you was ain't who you are. He's struggling to decipher that nugget of bullshit. What? What I mean is, our old lives are gone, ain't they? None of it counts for nothing now. Same goes for them dead fuckers out there. Look at them. Then look at us. We're better than them. We're stronger than them. We're in control now, Keith. So long as you don't lose it and fuck everything up. The world has become something of a vacuum. What little sound there is travels far and fast. It might not seem like much, but raised voices, a few screams and shouts, the noise of an incessant body being dealt with. All these things combine to make more of a noise than you'd probably imagine. Although there are parts of the perimeter of the park which are relatively easy to breach— The dead are struggling with anything but the most basic of physical movements. Their coordination and control is severely lacking. They don't instigate. They only react. They follow the herd. The geography of this particular area is interesting. It's relatively flat and predominantly residential. Many of the homes were built in the late 50s and early 60s, and the layout of the roads within the estate is surprisingly uniform. This means the dead tend to move in the same general direction. Take the main gate of the park, for example, where Anna stood yesterday morning and preened herself in front of the masses when she first brought Keith here. Rather than turn and leave, those corpses that followed them here have continued to loiter, perhaps sensing the survivors are still nearby, and as more have subsequently arrived, so those nearest the barrier have become stuck wedged between the gate on one side and the unsteady stream of the new arrivals on the other. Whatever the reason, there's quite a crowd building up here, and it's not just the dead who are interested. Smoke drifting up from the bungalow chimney, large numbers of corpses, the occasional raised voice—all these things are of real interest to anyone watching. And people are watching. The rest of the day disappears in a haze of nervous contradictions. It's like that first day all over again, Keith thinks. Each individual second feels like it takes an eternity to pass. And yet now it feels like the light is fading way ahead of schedule. It can't be sundown already, can it? As the bungalow gets darker, the fire gets brighter. Keith occupies himself by cooking and trying to sort their stuff into some kind of order. Anna watches from her bed. She can't wait for him to finish their food. She's starving. She's been pigging out on junk all day, and she's ready for something warm. Earlier this evening, they made a run to the stream for water, bringing as much back as they could in flower pots and watering cans taken from the park equipment. He glances over at Anna as an empty bean tin half full of water starts to bubble in the embers of the fire. He thinks she looks different again tonight. Her face is grubby from the smoke. She looks younger than she did when they first met in the supermarket. "'You're not wearing any makeup,' he says. "'So?' "'You were plastered in it yesterday.' "'So?' she says again. "'Perv?' "'I'm not a perv. Just think it's weird.' "'What's weird?' "'Why you'd make an effort to look nice just to go out looting?' "'It's not cause I was out looting,' she explains.' It's just because I knew I wasn't going to be sitting in here all day. Didn't know who I was going to meet out there. Anyway, you're just a bloke. You wouldn't understand. A body stumbles past the bungalow window, startling Keith. It's just a shadow, gone in a heartbeat. He remembers what Anna told him and holds his breath and holds his nerve. He peers out through a gap in the curtains, just to be sure it's gone. Even though they're thin and old... The curtains are good enough to keep the light from the fire inside and seal the darkness out. The water's finally boiling. Keith sees that it's ready and uses it to make two pot noodles. Anna's eyes are wide. "'Beef and tomato or chicken curry?' he asks. "'Curry,' she answers without hesitation, and suddenly she's like a kid on Christmas morning. She waits impatiently for the processed food to be ready stirring it and prodding at it incessantly with a plastic fork, watching him for cues. Then she tucks in. She sucks up a long noodle and laughs as sauce flicks everywhere, splashing up her nose and across her cheek. You'd make someone a good mum, you would. Keith doesn't react at first, and she's not sure why. Has she said something she shouldn't? I'm serious, she says. Your food is lush. It's a bloody pot noodle, he tells her. You add boiling water and you stir. Nothing difficult about it. Yeah, but you need to know how much to put in and when. You have to know how long you gotta leave it for and when to add the sauce. He just looks at her, surprised by her naivete. The instructions are printed on the side of the pack. She nods and looks. He's right. She never noticed that before. No wonder she never made them right. She eats some more, then asks a question that's been on her mind for a while. What happened to your mom? The question comes out of the blue. Hits him hard and unexpectedly. She died. Yeah, I guess that much, she says, still slurping noodles. How? Jesus, Anna, you're not big on tact, are you? What? Don't worry about sparing my feelings or anything like that. She laughs again. Are you serious? Take a look outside. Everybody's dead, not just your mom. Get over it. Don't make no difference what happened to her now. You think? I know. So how did she die? I don't want to talk about it. Something to do with you, Dad? Yes, if you must know. Was it his fault? Depends who you're asking. I'm asking you. Did he murder her? Grow up. Maybe you should ask someone else. There ain't no one else. He thinks she might have got the message and given up by now, but not this girl. He busies himself with his food, avoiding eye contact. She continues, undeterred. So is that how you learned to cook, then? Your mom died and your dad started drinking, so you was left to do all the dinners? Something like that. Like I said, I don't want to talk about it. Maybe you should... This is the point where he'd probably get up and walk out. But that's not an option tonight. He's stuck here. Stuck here with Anna and her bloody, incessant questions. He puts down his food, frustrated. Maybe if I knew a little more about you, I'd be more inclined to share. She's awkward, now the boot's on the other foot. Nothing to tell. There must be something. Where were you when all this happened? Who were you with? Who have you lost? I told you I was asleep. I'd been out on the lash. Who with? My mates. Who? Just some girls. Oh, and Josh, my boyfriend. She scrambles around her bedding and finds a phone, which she turns on. She searches for a photo and throws it over to Keith. There's a picture of a boy on the screen. Good looking. Trendy. Everything that Keith isn't. Is opposite, in fact. Anna explains. We was just hanging around, nothing special. We was just having a few cans and a bit of a laugh, that's all. Keith passes the phone back. What happened? What do you think happened? Can you see anyone else here? Think I should send them a text and get them to come round? She rolls over onto her side, facing the wall. They're dead. Like all the others. I'm sorry, he says, embarrassed and he leaves her to her memories as he makes them both a drink. Day 4 Anna's snoring like a bloody elephant when Keith wakes up next morning. She's so loud, in fact, he wonders if her noise might have been what woke him up. He slept a little better, though he still seems to wake up more tired each morning than when he fell asleep. He gets up quietly so as not to wake her, and checks all the windows. It's all clear outside, as far as he can see. There's one body tripping through the distance, a dead kid, he thinks, but that's all. He decides to risk going out. He doesn't have a lot of choice, but he finds a much nearer tree to pee against this morning. When he gets back, relieved in more ways than one, he looks around the cluttered park keeper's bungalow dejectedly. The thought of spending another day trapped in this cramped and chaotic place is depressing. His mood worsens when he thinks even further ahead, because he can't see an easy way out of this. Right now it looks like it's him and Anna and these four walls from here on in, but maybe he could do something to make the place a little more bearable. He starts tidying up. He made a token effort last night before the lack of light stopped him but this morning he decides to really go for it. Anna's untidy nest has slowly spread from under the window to halfway across the floor, and he starts respectfully moving some of her stuff, not wanting to disturb her or invade her limited privacy. Not least because he knows she'll give him a load of verbal abuse if she catches him near her things. He picks up food wrappers and puts them along with other rubbish into an empty carrier bag, then folds up her discarded clothing and piles it all neatly. Maybe he should do a wash later. He can heat up some water, use a bucket from the council stores, find some soap. His own clothes are filthy. But then he stops himself. He's slipping back into his old routine, taking responsibility and looking for jobs to do. What does it matter now if he's covered in mud and dried blood from the corpses? Who is it going to offend? And then... Lying under a pair of panties and a lone sock, Keith finds the gun. She's left it there like it's a toy, and that scares him as much as the gun itself. He clears a space around it and just looks at it for a moment, trying to decide what to do. He's almost too afraid to touch it. He's never held a gun before, not a real one, anyway. He gingerly picks it up by the grip, holding it at length like it's toxic. The weight takes him by surprise. Put it back. It's mine. Christ, she scared him. He almost drops the gun, his heart thumping. Sorry, I was just cleaning up. I found it on the floor. I put it there. Give it back. He hands it to her and she takes it from him and puts it under the pillow before rolling over and going back to sleep. Anna wakes up with a start. She sits up and looks around, feeling like she's been picked up and dropped into another park keeper's bungalow in another park, one that's immeasurably cleaner and tidier than the one in which she fell asleep. Bloody hell, she says. I got sick of living in a pigsty, he says, before adding. I didn't mess with any of your stuff, just tidied it up a bit. Looks great. Don't look like the same place. Amazing what a bit of effort can do, eh? A bit of elbow grease. You what? Never mind. Doesn't matter. Look, I found a bike chain and a padlock. It'll make the door more secure. She nods, disinterested, then wipes the sleep from her eyes, stretches and yawns. What's for breakfast? Whatever is left. We're running out of stuff. We should go and get some more then. Keith was expecting her to say that. Cleaning up the bungalow really helped him realize how little they've got but he's not keen on the idea of leaving here. He thinks he'd rather starve. It's too dangerous out there. There's still a massive crowd up by the gate. Then we'll go out another way. It's too risky. I don't like it. You don't like anything? Okay, then, we'll just stay here and go hungry. That's just stupid. So you want it both ways. What are we supposed to do then, dumbass? Because if we don't go out and get more food, we're fucked. You think I don't know that? I don't know what you think. There'll be thousands of them up by the shops now. Says who? If you and me aren't there, why are they going to hang around? They'll just disappear again. Damn, he thinks. She has a point. Problem is, Keith, you're a coward. Piss off, he says quickly, even though he knows she's right. You do all the easy stuff. All the cooking and cleaning... Stuff like that. But when things get tough, you go to pieces. That's not true, he says, backpedaling furiously. You just want to keep your head down and let me take all the flack. Keith quiet now, searching for options and comebacks, but knowing there probably aren't any. He was distracted cleaning the bungalow. He actually enjoyed it, but now he's forced to face reality again. The familiar, sickly nervousness has returned. He's straight back in hell. And then, an idea. An alternative. A compromise. There are houses out there, he says, pointing out the window. Anna gets up, hopping around in her sleeping bag too cold to get out. Where? Look, over there, behind the trees. When the gusting wind shifts the branches, she sees the roofs of a line of houses. So, what are you saying? We just break in. I guess so, he says, feeling about as certain as he sounds. Don't see what choice we have. It's a better option than the shops. It's not like they'll miss their stuff if they're dead, Anna adds, thinking out loud. Thanks for that. It's true, though. It might well be true, he thinks, but it's not helping. We should go later, he says, looking for excuses again, delaying tactics. How much later? This afternoon. You're kidding, she says. What's the point of waiting? I'm starving. We should go now. And she's already getting dressed before he can protest. She drops the sleeping bag to her feet and steps out of it, barely clothed. She knows Keith's watching, but cares less than she should. Nervous doesn't even come close to describing how Keith's feeling right now. Scared is a little more accurate. Completely fucking terrified is much more like it. He's regretting this, cursing himself for even mentioning the houses and wishing he'd kept his dumb mouth firmly closed. But he also knows she's right. That wouldn't have done either of them any good in the long run. There's no doubt they have to do this, and they'll probably have to do it again before long. The two of them walk across the park together. There's no cover here, no shelter or protection, just open grassland. Anyone could see them, if there was anyone left looking. There are no corpses nearby, and Anna reckons if they can't see any of the dead, the dead can't see them. That's what she hopes, anyway. Keith's not convinced about her logic, but it makes him feel a little better, too. The morning gloom is helpful. Everything looks gray a light mist covering everything. Perfect horror movie weather, Anna says. There's a copse of trees to get through, then a fence. They figured they need to steer clear of official park entrances, because that's where they expect to find the dead in large numbers. The grass here amongst the trees is longer, full of ferns and weeds, soaking the bottom of Keith's jeans. He thinks about trying to find some replacement gear while they're out, though the idea of wearing a dead man's trousers definitely doesn't appeal. Anna's really struggling in her converse and cut-offs, still dressing for appearances, not for the conditions. She's done her hair and put makeup on again. He thinks she looks good. He'd tell her, but he doesn't know how. The trees here are young and spiteful, head-height branches constantly whipping at their faces. Keith thinks it's like they're trying to stop them getting through to the other side. Maybe the trees are trying to help, trying to protect them from the danger elsewhere, or maybe they're doing the exact opposite. Maybe they're doing everything they can to stop them ever leaving the park, holding on to them like grabbing hands. Keith's so nervous he can hardly think straight. If only we'd ended up somewhere other than this park. If only I hadn't screwed up at the supermarket. If only I'd managed to get Dad out of the house so I could have stayed there. So many regrets, all of them pointless, none of them helpful. It's just nerves talking, but the nerves seem to be talking all the time these days. Shouting more than talking, actually. Screaming. They finally make it to the fence. There's no conversation because they both know what they have to do. Keith edges along one way, Anna the other. He finds a way through first. A couple of slatted boards are missing, and another is loose. He pushes it away, cringing when it cracks like a gunshot, then squeezes through the gap. And now they're standing directly in front of the first of the row of houses they saw from the bungalow. This is a street Keith's passed the end of hundreds of times. It's only a few roads away from home, and yet he's never been down here. It makes him realize how restricted his life used to be. Wake up in the same bed each day, see the same few people, take the same bus to work, and then do it all again in reverse when the work's done. It looks different here to how he expected. The same design of council houses to his, just arranged slightly differently. Two long rows facing each other on either side of the street, with a wide, grass-covered central reservation between them. Come on, says Anna, teeth chattering with the cold. Keith just stands there, thinking it's funny how perspectives change. All the time he was stuck in the bungalow in the middle of the park. All he wanted to do was escape its walls. Now he's actually made it out, all he wants to do is go back. He tries to focus on the task in hand. Getting in, getting what they need, then getting out as quickly as possible but it's hard focusing on anything when you're this damn scared. There's a dead body up ahead, coming slowly down the road towards them. There's no urgency about it, and somehow that makes it appear all the more threatening. They both watch it for a few seconds longer than they should, transfixed by its awkward gait. It's like it's trying to learn how to use its own body again. It's another bloody paradox." This thing looks barely able to coordinate its own arms and legs, and yet there's absolutely no question about its intent. Keith and Anna both know if they stand here much longer, they'll be in a shed load of trouble. They have to move. The approaching cadaver has unknowingly forced their hand. Breaking and Entering This is all new to Keith, but obviously not to Anna. He tries the front door, but she's already several steps ahead of the game. She tries a couple of ground floor windows, then scrambles up and over the side gate, feet kicking wildly as she reaches the top and drops over. A second later and he hears the bolt, then the latch. She ushers him quickly inside. The back garden is clear. They check all the windows for any obvious bodies stuck indoors, but don't see anything untoward. It looks like no one was in here when it happened. Anna wraps her knuckles on a patio door and waits a while, just to be certain. She holds her breath, expecting one of them to come lurching out of the shadows and flying towards her at any moment. The side door's locked, but there's a window that's been left open slightly. Anna reaches her slender wrist inside and is able to get to the handle and open it fully. Keith helps her up, struggling less with the effort and her weight and more with the sudden awkwardness of this close, physical contact. He's got his hands all over her backside now, holding her steady as she wriggles inside. She makes some dumb, inappropriate comment about how she hopes he's enjoying having a good feel, but he ignores her. Sex is the very last thing on his mind right now. He couldn't get it up if he tried, and he has absolutely no intention of trying. There's a long wait while Anna roots around inside, trying to find the keys so she can get one of the doors open. When she finally reappears, she finds Keith on his hands and knees, looking under the gate to see if that damn body has made it this far down the road yet. She just looks at him, lying down there with his face pressed against the paving slabs. She's wondering if he's finally cracked. Keith, you prick, come on, she hisses. He gets up and brushes himself down. Just get stuff we can use, he tells her as they go inside. You check the rest of the house. I'll do the kitchen. Start with downstairs. Yes, Mum," she says without thinking. He glares at her but bites his tongue, then starts ferreting through cupboards and drawers. He finds a load of Tupperware and a stash of carrier bags. He thinks they should take their time and take everything useful from this place. It's five minutes to the bungalow and back. They can risk making a few quick trips. Anna leaves the kitchen like a girl on a mission, but she's really not. She waits until Keith's out of sight, then slows the pace dramatically. She wanders through the lounge, running her fingers over dusty surfaces, picking up knick-knacks, then putting them down again, disinterested. A couple of things catch her eye, but there's nothing much worth taking. What did Keith expect her to find here, anyway? Is he thinking about shifting a sofa or an armchair or some fancy ornaments to make the bungalow look nice? The only thing she'd bother with is the massive flat-screen TV in the corner. It looks like a really good one. It's bigger than any TV she's ever had, that's for sure. But there's no power in the bungalow, and there's no TV on anymore, remember? Even if she did manage to get it over there and plugged in, Keith would only start stressing about the noise and the light. He's like an old woman. He's always having a moan about something. She meanders upstairs, taking her time, wondering who might have lived here. She thinks it's sad she didn't have a house like this. Maybe she could now. Okay, so it's not that big. It definitely ain't the poshest of places, but there's a nice atmosphere in here. A good vibe. She feels safe. Warm. Protected. She thinks about maybe trying to persuade Keith that they should both move over here. Either that or she could just move in on her own, come to that. She doesn't know how she feels about living on her own, though. She's getting used to having Keith around. She feels like she's been on her own long enough. Considering it's only a few days since everyone else died, the house actually feels dead. Anne is not entirely sure what she means by that. It's hard to explain. It's like the life has been sucked out of everywhere. It's as cold inside as it is outside. A window on the upstairs landing has been left open and there's a massive water stain on the carpet. There's none of the usual noise she remembers from houses like this, though it has been a while. Just an unending silence. Apart, that is, from the din Keith's making down in the kitchen. She hears him curse when he knocks a load of stuff over, And she giggles at the noise. There's nothing in the bathroom worth taking, save for a little makeup which she shoves in her pockets. The main bedroom's not much better. It's all grand designs, all wood and metal, proper posh. She opens another door and glances into a boy's room. It's small and square, and it stinks the way teenage boys do. Did... The football scarf and the posters of naked women are all she needs to see, and she's out of there as quick as she went in. She finds herself in a young kid's bedroom next. It's a little too juvenile for her tastes, but she appreciates how much the little princess who lived here's parents must have loved her. She can almost hear her talking to them. "'I want this wallpaper, Daddy.' and I want a desk like this, and a table like that, and a TV in the corner, and a computer so I can talk to my friends whenever I want to. Anna thinks she sounds bitter, but she's not, really. Jealous, perhaps. Disappointed. Just upset that no one ever did anything like this for her. That no one cared enough. Daddy might have, but Mummy wasn't even sure which one of three blokes he was. She's distracted by a poster on the wall when the dead kid attacks her. It's the teenage brother of the little darling whose room this was, but that's irrelevant because he doesn't live here now. He just exists in this place. He's gangly, clumsy, decaying, and aggressive as hell. He hurls himself at her and the impact takes her completely by surprise. She hits the side of the bed face first, then bounces off onto the floor. She's lying on the carpet now, looking up, All the wind knocked out of her, and the creature falls on top of her before she can even scream for help. But downstairs in the kitchen, Keith already knows something's wrong. The noise of Anna hitting the deck echoes through the whole building, and though he's scared, though his heart's racing, he's already running up the staircase to get to her. He doesn't expect to see this, though. Anna's lying there with that thing forcing itself on top of her, like it's violating her. He wants to help but the fear is too great and he's rooted to the spot, just watching. Anna writhes in panic and disgust beneath the hideous dead kid, but he's such a weight she can hardly move. She tries to yell out for help again, but there are dead hands all over her face, feeling her skin, rubbing against her tongue and teeth, pressing her eyes. She's having to breathe through her nose, mouth full of icy fingers. When one unfeeling hand shifts unexpectedly, she tries to call out but manages only a choked sob. That noise is enough. It galvanizes Keith and forces him into action. He knows he has to act because Anna's all he's got. The thought of living in this dead new world is bad enough, but the thought of doing it alone is unbearable. He needs her and she needs him that realization has more of an impact than he expected. And he lunges forward angrily and grabs a fistful of the dead kid's lank, curly hair. It's so greasy and tainted with decay, but the limp brown strands start to slip between his fingers, like they've been covered in oil. But now that he's finally doing something, now that he's finally made contact with the corpse, he's not going to stop. He puts his hand under the boy's jaw, feeling his teeth grinding involuntarily, then drags him away. Anna gets up and scrambles out of the way. She's left sitting in the corner of the room, knees pulled up to her chest, crying like a kid half her age. Keith stuck with a squirming corpse to deal with. So he does. Even though the body's arms and legs are thrashing wildly, its movements are purely instinctive and are barely controlled. It doesn't even try to defend itself when Keith screws up his fist and punches it in the face. It doesn't even seem to notice, either. It rides the blow, head slamming against the side of a small dressing table, then just rights itself like nothing happened. Keith takes this indifference as a personal slight. He's sick and tired of being ignored, sick and tired of being the expected underdog. He's had years of being treated like a bloody doormat. Even now... When there's only one other person left alive, as far as he's aware, this dead bastard is treating him with the same kind of contempt he got from his dad and the people at work and everybody else. It's time to put an end to it. It's time to take control. He knows kicking and punching just isn't going to cut it, though. There's a lamp on the corner of the dressing table with a heavy ceramic base. He picks it up and tries to swing it at the corpse's head, forgetting the cord still plugged in at the wall. He wrenches out the flex, then tries again. The right-angled corner of the square lamp base digs deep into the corpse's left temple, almost becoming wedged. The corpse stops, appearing stunned for a moment, then continues fighting. Keith hits it again, the base glancing off the side of the dead kid's skull this time. And again swinging wildly and cracking the boy's cheekbone, overpronounced due to the onset of decay. Once more, slamming directly down like he's cracking an egg. Each time he makes contact, the creature's face becomes a little more deformed. Ice-white flesh is increasingly being obscured by slow dribbles and steady floods of lumpy, semi-coagulated black blood. In frustration because the damn thing's not yet rolling over and giving up. Keith rips the shade off the lamp, smashes the bulb on the edge of the dressing table, then shoves the jagged remains of the bulb and the metal fitting deep into the corpse's left eye. He pushes harder and harder, feeling it sink deeper and deeper in, until it won't go any further. That does the trick. Keith lets go, and the dead kid slumps forward. Gunk pouring out of the savage hole in his face, dripping chunks into his lap. Anna runs for the door, jumping the body's outstretched legs. Keith catches her wrist and pulls her back. What the hell were you doing up here? What the hell were you doing with that thing? She snatches her arm free and runs on. She's back at the bungalow before he's even left the house. When he finally gets back and shuts the door, Three trips later, loaded up with armfuls of stuff each time. He barely talks to her. Can barely bring himself to look at her. He keeps himself busy by putting everything away. Everything in its right place. Keith, she says, his silence making her feel increasingly nervous. He doesn't immediately respond, and she tries again. Keith? What? He yells, irritated trying to secure the door with a padlock and chain. Aren't you going to talk to me? What's there to say? I'm sorry if I fucked up. I was just trying to... Just trying to do what? He finally stops messing and stands in the middle of the room and looks straight at her. Come on, explain. What exactly was it you were trying to do back there? You were supposed to collect useful stuff, that's all. It wasn't bloody difficult. I was looking for stuff. So what did you find? Nothing. Cause I was about to go and look when that thing... Bullshit, he interrupts. That's just crap and you know it. You were dicking about. Same as you're always dicking about. I'm the only one who actually does anything here. She just stares into space, searching for words. She's angry at the tears she can't stop. Or maybe the tears are because of the anger... She doesn't know. Can't think straight. But you wouldn't have got nowhere if it weren't for me. I saved you in the supermarket, remember? I brung you here. You saved me, he repeats, voice incredulous. You saved me. I'll admit, I wasn't firing on all cylinders back then. But all you did was drag a corpse off me and smack it around the head. I'd have done it too if I had to. But you didn't have to. I done it. I done it. You should have heard that thing in the house before it got anywhere close, he tells her. You were distracted. But you never heard it neither, she says. We didn't check properly. They both know that's a valid point. Keith's about to speak again when one of the dead things crashes into the bungalow door. It takes him by surprise, but he's quickly over the shock. He watches it. It's on the other side of the glass now, dead eyes fixed on his pointlessly pawing at the window with lifeless hands. Stupid fucking thing. He knows it'll never get in. Thing is, Anna, he continues, voice no lower, winding up the corpse outside, I reckon you're going to be a fucking liability. You think you know what's going on here? But it's just a fucking act. I can see it now. You're just... He pauses when a second dead body crashes into the side of the building and he yanks the curtain across to block the corpses out, irritated by the interruption and the lack of privacy. You're just a kid, he says. You're nothing and you're nobody. If I weren't here, you'd be screwed by now. You'd be starving. Either that or you'd be dead. But when I found you... When you found me, I was a frigging wreck, I know that. But it was just nerves. I am over it now. But in the supermarket... In the supermarket, I'd have been all right. And that's the difference. Upstairs in that house just now, you were in real trouble. I don't reckon you'd have got away if I hadn't helped. Not true. I was about to get rid of it. It took me by surprise, that's all. I just... This is what it boils down to, he interrupts. You need me a hell of a lot more than I need you. But, Keith... He's had enough of her now. He paces around the room, but there's no way out, no escape. He's trapped. Trapped in this little box with this little kid. And he still doesn't even know anything about her. He has a flash of anger-fueled inspiration and grabs her phone from where she left it next to her pillow. He switches it on and waits for it to start up. Leave it, she says, and she tries to take it from him, but he's got height on his side and he holds her at bay. He turns his back on her and walks away, leaving her sobbing in the corner. If you're not going to tell me anything about yourself, I'll get what I need from this instead. He starts trying to navigate the phone, all fingers and thumbs. He's not used to touch screens. He sees a camera icon and presses it, then cycles through her photos. There are a few more pictures of her flashy boyfriend, but none of her. None of anything he recognizes. Not my phone, she says, and he turns around and looks at her, confused. What do you mean? I said it's not my phone. I found it. So, your boyfriend? Just some kid. Don't know him. He drops the phone on her bed. So, I'll ask you again. Who are you, Anna? Does it matter? It matters to me. She folds her arms across her chest and stares dead ahead like a scolded kid. I lived with my sister up near Princethorpe. And what happened to her, do I need to ask? I don't know. What do you mean, you don't know? I ain't been back there. Now he's even more confused. This doesn't make sense. He thinks back to when she first brought him to this place. He remembers how it looked and smelled. How it felt lived in, borderline homely. The pieces start falling into place. How long have you been living here? few weeks, she mumbles, almost embarrassed. About a month? For the first time in a long time, Heath senses she's finally being honest. So what happened? How long you got? Forever, it looks like. She half smiles, then her face drops again. She was always treating me like a kid. I know what I'm doing, though. I ain't stupid. Keith's a little calmer now. He wants to tell her she is stupid, sometimes. But he doesn't. I know. And she's always like, be in by this time, do this, do that. I couldn't take no more of it. So I stopped doing what she wanted and what the rest of them wanted and started living. I started doing stuff for myself. Fucked a lot of them. Ironic. What's that mean? It's funny. You start living and everyone else dies. Can't see nothing funny about that. He doesn't bother trying to explain. I do know how you feel, though, he tells her. Doubt it. I do. More than you'd expect. How so? Because I used to get the opposite. I just wanted to dick around and do what I wanted, but I never could. I was always too busy with work. And when I wasn't at work, I was looking after Dad. You ain't got neither of them now. I ain't got nothing now, he says, mimicking her lousy diction. You still got me, she says quickly, and he's not sure how to take that. So how old are you, Anna? Nineteen, she answers quickly. Too quickly. Keith might be a little green, but he's not that stupid. She knows from the look on his face that he can see through her. Sixteen, she admits. Almost. Bit young to be living on your own, don't you think? I'm doing all right. Yeah, I can see that. So how old are you then? She asks him. Nearly twenty-one. Bit young to be such an old man. She has a point. So where do we go from here? Don't see there's anywhere to go. Just stick here, I reckon. Keith's not sure if that thought excites or depresses him. If he's honest, he's not sure of anything anymore. He looks outside again and sees that the two bodies have become disinterested and have wandered away. He remembers what happened in the house just now, and that makes him focus again. He knows he can't afford to allow himself to become distracted. Anna needs to know he's in charge. If you're staying here, you do what I say, okay? If I'm staying here, this is my place, dumbass, remember? Things are changing. Says who? Says me. See, I've spent far too long looking after other people, and I'm damn well not going to tie myself up in knots looking after you. I'll cook, I'll clean, but I'm not your fucking babysitter, right? I already told you I'm not a kid. You're not even sixteen years old, so technically you are. She glares angrily at him, stewing. He likes that. He knows he's starting to get through to her, that he's learning how to deal with her better now. You hungry? he asks. She nods her head, can't bring herself to answer. Again, he smiles inwardly. He knows food is her Achilles' heel. I'll cook us something. Did you remember to get a tin opener? She shakes her head this time and readies herself for another torrent of abuse. But it doesn't come. He's playing with her. Thought as much, he says, grinning. Good job, I got one, then. He goes over to the kitchen space, well ordered now, as clean as it can be in the circumstances, and collects all the things he needs. He makes a fire, he's grated the wood into different thicknesses, and lights it. He uses pages torn from one of her magazines to get it started. And as much as she wants to protest, she doesn't. She knows there might not be any more issues published, but all the magazines she could ever want are out there somewhere. Day 5 When Anna wakes up this morning, she sees that Keith's on his way out the door. She panics and sits up fast. You leaving me? Where did that come from? Don't know, she says, feeling foolish. What's wrong? Nothing's wrong. Then where are you going? To fetch some water. He leaves the bungalow, carrying a number of pots and pans they took from the house yesterday. Keith's starting to think they might be all right here, as long as he can keep Anna under control. And he will. He knows he will. He'll make her behave if he has to. The more he thinks about it, the better he's starting to feel about this place. It'll definitely do, for now. He's realized that making quick scavenging trips out to other houses nearby like they did yesterday might be enough to keep them stocked and supplied here for a while longer, at least until things calm down and the dead stop being such a damn nuisance. He reckons they will, eventually. And as long as they remain invisible to the bulk of the dead population until then, they should be okay. There's only two of them. How much stuff will they really need to stay alive? Enough food and water, fresh clothes, a supply of decent books. For the first time since everything fell apart, Keith realizes he's actually starting to think slightly longer term. He collects as much water as he can carry from the stream, then turns back towards the bungalow. In the short time he's been outside, gray light has begun to seep reluctantly across the scene. Brightened by the merest hint of autumnal morning sun on the horizon, it's good to be out in the open again. He thinks back to this time last week and remembers where he was, queuing for the bus in the rain, heading for work but already knackered after sorting dad out first thing. The only visible movement comes from the bodies still gathered around the entrance to the park. They remind him of crowds being held back by security waiting to be led into a concert arena or the January sales. They're a damn nuisance, he knows that much. Imagine how much easier life would be if they didn't have the dead to worry about. Everything would be completely different if it was just him and Anna. He longs for a time when his first thought every morning is, what do I want to do today? Not, what do I have to do? He can see the body Anna dealt with on that first afternoon when they were out collecting wood. Christ, he was such an idiot back then. Absolutely bloody useless. From here, the corpse looks like it's being absorbed back into the landscape. Its feet stick up like mounds of weeds. A stiff arm twists up like a fleshy sapling. And, for the first time, rather than think, Thank Christ Anna did that, Keith now thinks... I've done that, too, and I'll do it again if I have to, as many times as necessary." He leaves the water outside the bungalow, then drags the body out of the way, well away from the building. He's worried it'll soon start to stink. He pictures hordes of angry, buzzing flies keeping him awake at night, and imagines a stench like the smell he remembers from Dad's all-night benders when he had to chuck out his bedding and hose the old man down after he'd thrown up or shat himself or both. He wipes his hands on the grass while he catches his breath. He doesn't want to go back inside. Not just yet. He looks around the park again, checking for other bodies on the lethargic prowl. He sees one or two of them, tripping through the undergrowth, staggering aimlessly through the slowly lifting gloom. But they're of little concern to him now. How things have changed, he thinks. He can't believe he made such a bloody fuss before. He'd have been inside by now, trembling in the shadows, waiting for them to disappear. He can't understand why he used to be so weak, why he was such a coward. He should have been like this version of Keith from the start. He thinks he should have been like this version of himself for a long time. Maybe the pre-apocalypse world would have been more bearable if he'd acted this way and shown a little backbone sooner. Whatever, he's glad to have found himself at last. And yes, he's well aware of just how pretentious that sounds. Using the last of the dawn shade as cover, Keith decides to explore a little more of his environment. It strikes him how naive he was to simply follow Anna into the parkkeeper's bungalow without question never once stopping to consider what else might be here or if there was a better location nearby. It's been a long time since he's been this deep into the park—a lifetime, almost. There's little to see. There's a children's playground which looks eerie in the shadows. In fact, he can hardly bear to look at it. A swing moves slightly in the breeze, and a roundabout slowly spins as if the ghosts of dead kids are playing on it. And Keith knows there will be literally hundreds of dead kids within the few miles surrounding this place. He almost scares himself into heading back inside with such thoughts. But he stops because he knows he has far more about him than that now. He's a bigger man than he used to be. A better man. He walks around the perimeter of the park now, taking care to keep a short distance in from the very edge to avoid attracting the attention of the bodies on the other side. He can see them out there, moving constantly. The way they drag themselves around, resigned, weary, reminds him of the daily commute he used to hate so much. Used to. It feels good to be able to think like that. He's so relieved those days are over. These poor fuckers. They're still trapped like he was. They'll never escape. They'll never get away. A couple of corpses spot him through the trees and immediately change direction, but there's no real threat here. They've no common sense, these dumb, dead things. Now three of them move together like a gang or a lynch mob, trying to get to him across a dense thicket. But it's clear they're not going to get through. It's clear to Keith, anyway, if not to them. They just keep trying, relentless, pointless. He looks up at the tower block in the near distance, its top few floors barely visible through the morning murk. That'll be a good place to look for supplies, he thinks. A hundred or so homes, all stacked on top of one another. Imagine how much stuff will be in there. But then he thinks about all the dead tenants and other inhabitants of those hundred or so homes, and he thinks he might take a rain check on that idea. He stares up at the building for a few seconds longer convinced he saw a flash of light in one of the windows, some movement. It was probably nothing, just one of the dead trapped in its apartment, he decides, either that or a momentary glimpse of the morning sun straining through the clouds. Back towards the center of the park now, and the outline of a dilapidated block of changing rooms looms between the trees. He remembers this place being built when he was a kid, but he never actually saw anyone use the building for its intended purpose. He slowly circles around it, checking it out. There are padlocks on the doors and spray paint on the windows. It looks pretty solid, though. He thinks maybe they could move into this place if the bungalow becomes too cramped. Or maybe he could use this place. A man cave, isn't that what they call it? There's a metal spiral staircase welded to the outside wall two stories. He thinks how much of an advantage it would be to have a base up there instead of down here, though he realizes as well that getting back down might prove to be a problem if too many of the locals became interested in his whereabouts. For a few minutes, he just stands there looking up at the side of the silent building, daydreaming. There you go again, Keith, he says to himself, smirking, thinking about the future like you've got one. There's a merg here he doesn't recognize. This never used to be here. This used to be a paddling pool, or a bike track, or something like that. He didn't even know things like this were called mergs until just now. There's a sign at the entrance which explains everything. It's a multi-use recreation ground, apparently. Just a fancy name for a fenced-off, five-a-side football pitch basketball court. He pushes the wire mesh gate open, and it squeaks, then scrapes along the ground, filling the air with disproportionately loud noise. Keith walks right into the center of the court. When he looks back, he sees a football that's been left behind. For a moment, he's too busy thinking about who might have left it here. Who might have been the last kid to kick it, that he doesn't do anything else. Then he snaps out of it quick and starts playing with the ball. He passes to nobody, then sells a dummy to nobody else. Nutmeg's a third person who isn't there. Christ, team games can be awful lonely these days. But what the hell? It's just good to be occupied. He traps the ball near the center spot and eyes up a free kick, picturing a wall of imaginary defenders and a goalkeeper who isn't there. Then he shoots. He's not wearing the right shoes for this, but his shot's pretty impressive nonetheless. He gets the ball to curve, but it doesn't dip as he'd hoped. It clatters against the mesh fence above the goal, filling the air with noise. Not bad, he thinks, but not that good, either. He retrieves the ball and turns towards the other goal now, taking a shot from three-quarters of the way down the pitch, sending it just wide. And he doesn't hesitate. He chases after it again, and once again, he shoots, enjoying the sudden physical exertion and the distraction of football. And again, and again, and this time he actually scores. And again and this time he hears the wire mesh rattle before he's kicked the ball. Keith's got company. He knows he's not alone now, that the opposition have finally turned up to play. It looks like it was probably about his age when it died. The corpse is the remains of the kind of kid who used to intimidate Keith back in the old world, back in the old days. He has a shaved head, too much cheap gold jewelry, And he's wearing gray jogging bottoms and a sweatshirt that's very heavily stained with seepage and decay. But he's nowhere near the threat he would once have been. All his swagger replaced by stagger. A useless, vacuous, dumb fuck. As the dead thing walks toward him, it inadvertently kicks the ball, sending it spinning off to the side, then ricocheting off the wall and into the goal. Keith laughs involuntarily. He's impressed. He recovers the ball and dallies around the dead kid. He's playing with him, taunting him, and the corpse is not best pleased. It swipes at the air with clumsy hands, missing Keith every time. But then either Keith misjudges or the corpse strikes it lucky, because his outstretched dead fingers make contact with the back of Keith's head. And now Keith's fucking furious. It's bad enough that this foul creature should end up in his merg, in his park. But to have dared make contact like that is unforgivable. It's not on at all. Does he know who Keith is? It's very possible, given the close proximity of Keith's home, that he knew who Keith was. But things have changed now. Neither of these two men are who or what they used to be. At the other end of the wire cage therein, Keith has spied a lump of wood. It's the shape and size of the kind of wooden posts that used to hold up estate agent signs. How it got there, he has no idea. But that's not important now. Keith knows it'll suit his purposes perfectly. He boots the ball straight at the dead kid, hitting him in the nuts and totally confusing him, then jogs back and picks up the wooden post. This time, when he turns back around, the merg doesn't look like a merg to Keith anymore. It's more like a gladiatorial arena. Keith almost begins to wish there were a few hundred more dead fucks on the other side of the fence to watch this, because he knows it's going to be good. He passes the wooden post from hand to hand, getting used to its shape and size and weight, then moves in to attack. In his head, he tells himself he's going in for the kill, but how can he kill this thing when it's already dead? No matter. He swings the wood around hard and fast, making brutal contact with the side of the dead youth's head, almost ripping his right ear off completely. The power of the strike is astonishing. The body spins around and around, twisting its legs around itself like a corkscrew, then falling down hard. He hits its sprawled legs repeatedly, feeling bones break with every fresh blow. Keith knows he's already done more than enough damage to neutralize the threat, but the thing is, the damage he's done is nowhere near enough. He needs more. He needs to hurt this monstrosity. He needs to take advantage of the situation and beat the dead kid to a pulp to help release all the pent-up anger and frustration that's been building up inside him like a cancer these last few days and weeks, these last few years. And Christ, it works. The kid is on the ground in front of him now, trying to get up, oblivious to the fact its legs are completely useless. It's unable to understand what just happened unable to understand anything. Numb fingers claw at the asphalt, hands opening and closing, gripping at nothing. It's almost up on one shattered knee now when Keith strikes again, another savage blow to the head, this time almost wrenching its lower jaw clean off. Lumpy blood and brown, tooth-filled drool spills out from the ragged hole in its face, and a wide spray of the noxious stuff arcs across the floor of the merg when Keith hits it again, and again, and again, and he keeps hitting the damn thing until he's panting with effort and can barely feel his arms. Jesus, look at the state of that. There's hardly anything recognizable left above the creature's shoulders. Wide splashes of vivid gore slice across the ground. And, not for the first time, he thinks, I did that. And it feels good. What do you reckon? I reckon he's a fucking nutter. He's just a kid. Just a fucking crazy kid. So what do we do? We wait. Don't want to risk him going off on one and doing that to one of us. We'll bide our time. We can see enough from up here. Keith marches back to the bungalow. When he gets there, he sees the water he left outside has gone. He lets himself in and sees that Anna's up. I bring the water in, Keith. She's trying, and failing miserably, to get a fire started in the hearth. She looks him up and down, then returns her attention to the fire. Got a problem? he asks, annoyed. You're covered in blood. So? I got rid of another body that got too close. Jesus, Anna, how many matches have you used? The number of spent matches he sees scattered around angers him. Damn kids trying to light thick branches without using kindling or anything like that. What the hell are you doing? You'll never get it going like that. Don't you know anything? I'm sorry. I brung the water in and wanted to make us a drink. You brought the water in, not brung. Sorry. I just wanted to help. The best way you can help is by keeping out of the way. She slides back across the floor to her bed, hurt. He feels a twinge of regret, but then thinks, No, she has to understand. This is serious. We're not playing games here. I was just trying to help, she says again, sounding half her age. Grumbling to himself as he works, Keith has the fire lit in no time. He scribbles down matches on a piece of paper he's been keeping. She calls it his shopping list. He calls it essential requisitions for next trip out. He knows which sounds best. She watches him, doesn't take her eyes off him. She wonders if asking questions is really a good idea when he's in this kind of mood. But she wants to know. She needs to know. Where you been? Outside. I know that, she says quickly, tongue loosening again and temper getting the better of her. If you ain't in here, then you're outside. "'Where outside?' "'Around and about. "'Around the park? "'Parts of it,' he explains, "'starting to feel slightly less annoyed now. "'He sits down and sets a tin of water in the fire to boil. "'I had a look around the fence just to see what it's like out there. "'And?' "'And there's no change. "'They're still dead, still here, "'still wandering around the place like empty-headed idiots.' She sniggers at his turn of phrase, then remembers herself and becomes more serious again. So why did you have to fight one of them? It was in the way. That was all that noise was? Sounded like you was playing football. He doesn't react. He's too busy remembering. The killing of the already killed is beginning to feel unexpectedly therapeutic. Keith didn't feel scared out there today. He didn't feel afraid. He felt alive. But if we stay quiet, they disappear. You don't have to go killing them just because you feel like it. Keith stares into the flames. His thoughts are brighter now, clearer, as vivid as the fire. Actually, Anna, he thinks, you're wrong. I can do whatever I want. There are more bodies in the park this afternoon. Keith wonders if their presence here is something to do with the noise he made earlier, massacring that kid. In the strangest way, he's almost glad they're here. He stands at the window in full view, and one of the dead marches across the park with something approaching a real sense of purpose, its speed quickening slightly the closer it gets to the bungalow. He's waving at the damn thing now, trying to get its attention. "'What the hell are you doing?' Anna asks, concerned. Cleaning up, he tells her. He picks up a shovel he found in the council stores, then makes for the door, a man on a mission. Don't go out there, Anna says. Please. Back in a minute, he tells her, and he's gone before she has a chance to argue. There's a moment of hesitation when the cold air hits him. It's bright outside, but the temperature drop is still significant. Nerves threaten to get the better of him as he watches the advancing cadaver, but the insecurities soon disappear because Keith knows things are different now. He's different. What he did to the body in the house yesterday, and then to the dead kid in the merg early this morning. Did you see what I did? Did you see how I hurt them? How I showed them who's boss? Actually, he doesn't know if they can feel hurt but it makes him feel good to believe that they can. There's another corpse that's even closer. He hears it before he sees it, the rustle of soiled clothing dried by the sun, accompanied by a breathless groan as its movement forces air from its arid lungs. He looks this one up and down, spending time getting to know it before getting rid of it once and for all. Who were you? There's something familiar about the shape of its face and its coloring. But then again, that's probably because they're all starting to look the same now, death bleaching away their individuality. It reminds him of someone who used to be on TV. Or is it someone from work? Or was it a neighbor? Doesn't matter. Keith swings the shovel at its head and it makes contact with a nauseating, sonorous thud. The body remains standing but it stops like Keith's pressed pause, then just drops. Christ, that was easy. Too easy. Keith elated. They can't touch me. Incredibly, there are six more dead bodies here now. Keith thinks he should maybe be feeling nervous, but he's not at all fazed. One of them wraps its arms around him from behind. He literally shrugs it off, then turns around and buries the tip of the shovel in its rubbery gut. A few days decaying has seriously weakened its skin, and Keith gags with disgust and jumps with excitement at the same time as its putrefying innards spill out over its feet. It's like slashing a carrier bag bulging with weak-old butcher's offal. Getting rid of the rest of the rancid crowd is equally straightforward. What was all the fuss about? A swipe of the blade here, a full-force parry there. The fight, if you can even call it a fight, feels desperately one-sided in all but numbers. Within a couple of minutes, it's all over, bar the shouting. And Keith stands there breathless, surrounded by the remains of his kills. The carnage is hard to comprehend. Chunks of flesh spread around a wide swath of grass transforming the formerly pedestrian park into a bloody battleground. It's frightening how easy this is becoming. The nerves reduce with each subsequent kill. Fighting never used to come naturally to him, but this is different. It's scary, but he's almost beginning to enjoy it now. Will I get in trouble? He's starting to feel nervous now, worried. He looks around, wondering if there will be repercussions because of what he's just done. If some kind of order is ever restored to the world, will he face the consequences of his actions? He's genuinely anxious for a few seconds, but then he realizes it's okay. They're all dead, Keith, he reminds himself. There's no one left to give you a hard time. It's just you and her now. No one else and he needs her to understand how things are going to be from here on in. It's late. The atmosphere in the bungalow has been tense all afternoon and evening. Anna doesn't know what to say to him anymore. She hopes he's going to calm down again, be more like the Keith she first brought here, but the harder she tries, the more she seems to piss him off. She tries to make a drink again, but only succeeds in spilling water and putting out half the fire. You silly cow, he says, trying to save the flames. Sorry, just sit down and get out of the way. I'll make the drinks. I was just trying to help. You keep saying that, but when are you going to realize you're not actually helping me? I'll do this. You just sit there and do whatever it is you do. I'm glad you're here she says after a few minutes have passed. I know I'm a pain, but you make it okay. You mean I cook for you? I keep you warm and make you tea? Yeah, but that's not all. I like having you around. I just make it easy for you, he says without thinking. You're like my dad was. How do you work that out? I ain't nothing like your dad. You are. You're another dead weight. Someone else for me to carry. Honest, Keith, I'm not... I'm different. How? I helped you, remember? I showed you this place. Yeah, thanks for that, he mumbles sarcastically. But we help each other. We need each other. He just looks at her. He knows he's being harsh, but he thinks it's about time she heard this. He needs to get her into line. "'I reckon you need me. "'I'm not so sure it's reciprocal.' "'Recipro... what?' "'He shakes his head, irritated by her ignorance. "'What I'm saying is, I don't need you like you need me. "'There's no point being subtle with this kid. "'He has to say it how he sees it.' "'Anna's face changes. "'There's a tear which she wipes away fast, "'determined not to let him see.' though he clearly already has. He can see her thinking, her brain cycling through the limited options available to a dumb teenage kid trapped in an empty house in the middle of a park almost a week after the end of the world. "'I can help,' she says, sounding as desperate as she suddenly feels. "'You can give me jobs. I can do stuff. Fetch stuff.' "'Really? Remember the house, Anna?' That was a simple job, in and out, but you still managed to screw it up. It wasn't my fault. Then whose fault was it? It won't happen again. I won't be there to bail you out if it does. She thinks again, looking for ways to justify her position here. I can fetch food and water. So can I. Anyway, the wood you collected was all wet. Either that or it was too thick. Yeah, but I know now. I never done it before. I'll get it right next time. You can learn me how to do this stuff. Christ, her ignorance is really beginning to grate on his nerves. I can teach you, he says, correcting her. It's not learn you, it's teach you. (sighs) You can teach me then. Why should I? I already know what I'm doing. You never listen anyway. I'd just be wasting my time. But we've got loads of time. That's hardly the point. The discussion ends abruptly, but she continues to watch him intently. He's messing with the fire now, prodding the flames with a stick. She met this woman at a barbecue at a pub once who said that men can't help messing with fire, and she thinks about how Keith's a typical bloke, really and she readies herself to play her trump card because it's all she's got left. She raises herself up onto her knees next to him and unbuttons her top. She thrusts out her slight chest, then reaches behind to undo her bra. "'Don't,' Keith says. "'Put yourself away, silly little kid.' "'But there's things we can do, Keith. Things we can do to pass the time I can make you feel good.' Keith shakes his head and gets up and moves away. Weird thing is, he already feels good. Day 6 It's late morning. The early mist has long since burnt away, and the sky above the bungalow is a clear, faultless blue now. Although not particularly warm, the sun bears down uninterrupted. It's a glorious day. Picture a post-apocalyptic future where the dead outnumber the living by thousands to one, and you'd never have pictured a day like today. Keith started another fire now, but this one's outside. Earlier he spent a little time piling up all the body parts he scattered yesterday, and he soaked them in fuel he found in the tank of a lawnmower that'll probably never get used again. He's sitting on a park bench a short distance from the bungalow, staring into the flames and watching flesh, bone, and clothing being steadily reduced to nothing. It's funny, he thinks, how it all looks the same in the end, all reduced to carbon, same color, same texture. He knew starting such a large fire would be a risk, but it was one he was happy to take. He knew it would attract more bodies, too but what he didn't count on was the strangely cleansing effect it's having on their surroundings. The flames and the constant crackling, spitting, and popping noises have acted like a call to the faithful, and more corpses than ever have begun to drag themselves towards the fire from all directions. He's not concerned. It's nothing he can't handle. Anna sits at the other end of the bench, a little wedge of space between her and Keith. She has her hands buried deep in her pockets, and though she's chattering with the cold, she's not complaining. She doesn't want to do anything to upset him. It's hard, though, because she really doesn't like being out here like this. If she could spend all her time locked in the bungalow with the windows and doors blocked, she thinks she probably would. She thought she'd got the measure of this fucked-up new world, but she feels like Keith keeps moving the goalposts. She watches one particular corpse. She's had her eye on it for some time now. It was stuck for a while, the collar of its coat caught on an overhanging branch like it had been hung out to dry, but it's managed to wriggle and squirm free now. It's somehow lost its trousers, too. And that should be funny, but it isn't. It's directly opposite them, right on the other side of the park, right on the other side of the fire, and it's coming their way. Sure, the bonfire's right between them, but Anna's convinced it's them it's locked onto, not the flames. Step by stumbling step, the body gets closer. It's almost reached the fire now. Keith glances back over his shoulder, startled by something, and when Anna tries to turn around and look at whatever he's looking at, he grabs hold of her arm and mouths a silent no. She senses movement and then freezes. She remains perfectly still as yet another dead body. A little girl in a gingham school dress, half her height. Stumbles past en route to the flames. A few seconds later, and what's left of the kid is face down in the flames. The fire is drawing them here from all directions, like a beacon. But that other damn body is still coming their way. Anne is becoming increasingly agitated, and Keith can sense it coming off her. He understands why, though, because this particular corpse definitely is looking past the bonfire now and is staring at them. In fact, it doesn't even seem to see the heat haze, the smoke, or the flames. Maybe its eyes are particularly good, or particularly bad. It's not reacting in the same way as most of the others. Anna starts to shuffle away, edging further along the bench, trying to move back towards the bungalow, but Keith won't let her he's got her wrist now, and he's holding it tight. Too tight. Stay here, he tells her. Don't fucking move. But I want to go inside, she moans, the gap between them and the corpse continuing to rapidly decrease. I'm scared. He won't let go. She tries to fight a little longer, but quickly realizes there's no use. He's far stronger than she is, and more than that, She knows the more noise and movement they both make, the more chance there is of other bodies losing interest in the fire and coming their way. She relaxes slightly when the half-naked body is caught by the leg by something. Keith almost laughs out loud because it tries to keep moving but can't. Either its foot has gone down a pothole, or another corpse has managed to grab hold of it. Whatever the reason, it's being held up right on the very edge of the bonfire— And although dampened by decay, what's left of the creature's skin and clothing has quickly caught fire. They watch as flames begin to lick up its bare legs, then wrap around its torso and arms, its coat catching light with unexpected speed. And within a few more desperately brief moments, its face has been consumed by fire. All hair shriveled away to nothing, skin cooking like pork. But the fucking thing's still coming. It's somehow managed to free itself now, and it's moving towards them again. Surely it can't still see or hear them. How does it know? Anna begins to squirm again, desperate to get away, but Keith's grip continues to tighten, and she stops fighting because she knows the more she struggles, the more he's going to hurt her. Getting closer. She thinks it reminds her of the cover of that album the one that social worker had a poster of on his office wall. Was it Deep Purple? No, Pink Floyd, that was it. Wish you were here. A guy in a suit, shaking hands with a man on fire. Dad Rock. The momentary distraction of searching for the name provides a welcome respite, but it's over as quickly as it began, and now she's brought crashing back into this surreal reality again, wishing she was anywhere but here. The burning body is still coming, "'Trampling the ashes. More fire than flesh now. "'How does it keep moving? Why? "'Anna tries once more to get away. A token effort. "'It's so close she can feel the heat from the burning corpse now. "'But Keith remains impassive and unimpressed, "'his grip on her wrist still painfully tight. "'And then the body finally drops, the fire damage too severe. "'It sinks to its knees, then tips forward and plants its face in the grass, wafting a wave of heat and smoke and roast meat stink towards them. Keith relaxes. Anna doesn't. All is calm. It's dark now. The fire outside reduced to embers. Normally Anna would be spouting rubbish by now. Boring Keith by pointing out all the inconsequential things she's found in her inconsequential magazines. But not tonight. Tonight she's silent, subdued, scared. Tonight it's Keith doing all the talking while she cleans up the dinner scraps. We'll get a few more fires going tomorrow, he tells her. Key places, key points around the edge of the park. It'll help us keep the numbers down, give them something to focus on other than us. Okay. You were right about this place. We'll definitely stay here. Having this much land around it means we're pretty safe as long as we don't do anything stupid. We'll clear out a few more houses in a couple of days, get ourselves properly set up. If we're gonna do it, we might as well do it right, don't you think? She doesn't answer. She's looking into the ashes of the fire, remembering what happened earlier. Are you even listening to me? Course I am, Keith. Then what did I just say? You're going to start more fires. After that? Getting more stuff? She tries, hopefully. Clearing out more houses. Christ, Anna, you've really got to start paying more attention. Sorry. If you want to stay here and stay alive, you're going to have to listen to what I say and do exactly what I tell you. Got it? Got it. Keith sits back and watches her, quietly relieved. He thinks they might actually be starting to get somewhere here. For the first time in his life, he's in complete control. And just as importantly, she's starting to understand how things are going to be. Day 7 Keith's up first again next morning, no surprise. At first, he doesn't move. He just lies there in his makeshift bed, listening intently because he can hear something. It's something he wasn't expecting. There are footsteps outside the bungalow, but they're not the clumsy, barely-coordinated footsteps of the dead. There's someone else out there. Someone else still alive. His eyes are tired and full of sleep. He blinks several times and rubs them, then looks for Anna, trying to move as little as possible in case whoever's out there is looking in. She's still there, lying in her sleeping bag under the window, dead to the world, so to speak. Keith continues to listen. He hears whoever it is try the door. Thank Christ for the padlock and chain. Then sees them move past the window. The curtains are drawn so they can't look in. He hears them walking around the edge of the small building, following the sound of their footsteps as they complete a slow circuit. And then, after a couple of minutes which feel like an eternity, The footsteps start to fade. Assuming there's just one of them outside, it looks like they're finally leaving. Is it safe? He gets up and looks out of the window, crouching down and teasing up one corner of the curtain, and then he sees him. He's by the remains of yesterday's huge fire now, kicking through the ashes and the blackened bones, no doubt trying to work out why there's a burned-out heap of body parts in the middle of the park. What do I do? Keith's intimidated by the appearance of the man, and he can tell by the way he moves that he's definitely a man. He's all done up in standard survival gear, dressed in black from head to toe, a face mask covering his eyes, mouth, and nose, carrying some kind of long blade. He can see the man trying to piece together what might have happened here. He's coming towards the bungalow again. Keith presses himself hard against the wall, the way he used to when the dead got too close. The intruder rattles the door again, but the padlock and chain are holding, and he won't get in. Keith shoots an anxious look over at Anna, thinking, don't wake up, and thankfully she doesn't. She's still asleep under the other window. He's relieved she chose a position where she's hidden from anyone or anything outside looking in. Keith waits, and it feels like forever until he hears footsteps trudging away again. He watches the unknown survivor disappear, heading off towards the trees, He has a feeling he'll be back. But there's no question of Keith going out to speak to him. That doesn't cross his mind, not even for a second. And his reticence surprises even himself. Why wouldn't he want to make contact? Why is he hiding away from one of the only two other living people he's seen since this nightmare began? The survivor outside retraces his route through the park the way rats followed the same trail around overgrown gardens. Has he been here before? Whatever he's done or hasn't done, wherever he's been or why, Keith's just relieved that he's gone. Other people present unwanted connections with the old world he's left behind. Keith doesn't want to go back to that. He's always struggled with other people, always been unable to fit in alongside everyone else. But here, here in the park, everything's different. It feels safer here, despite all the obvious dangers. This is Keith's Garden of Eden where he calls the shots. He's in charge here, no one else, and that's how it's going to stay. Two men and a woman are out on a balcony, looking over the park from the eighth floor of the block of flats. It's high enough here to be able to see over the tops of the trees and across the entire park. Well? One of the men asks when the black-suited survivor returns. Just the two of them, like we thought. And? And I already told you he doesn't want to know. He thinks I didn't see him. What about the girl? The woman asks. I didn't see her today. So what do we do? Exactly what we said we'd do. When Anna wakes up, Keith tells her nothing of what he's seen this morning. She doesn't need to know. It'll only complicate matters unnecessarily. Much as he doesn't want to admit it to himself, there's part of him that's jealous of the survival-suited intruder. Maybe jealous is the wrong word. Intimidated, perhaps? Whatever the reason, the close encounter is bugging him. It's disturbed him, spoiled the moment, and he's not in a good frame of mind. He's losing his temper with Anna again. She keeps pressing him, trying to work out why he's acting so weird. Have I done something wrong? She asks. No. What then? Nothing. Just leave me alone, Anna. Go and get on with whatever it is you do around here. He's used that dismissive line on her before. It stings just as much second time around. The atmosphere is unbearable in here, inexplicably tense. Anna wishes she could just open the door and leave, but she knows she can't, apart from the fact the dead world's bloody dangerous out there. There are more physical restrictions preventing her, too. Keith's got the door locked permanently now, and he keeps the key in the pocket of his jeans at all times. She'd climb out the window if she thought she could, but there's too much uncertainty. Would he let her back in? Right now, she wouldn't be too bothered if he didn't, but she can't afford to take unnecessary chances. She has to look out for herself, doesn't she? Christ knows she's been doing it long enough. Her stomach flips with nerves when he moves suddenly. He finishes the coffee he made a while back, They're down to two cups per day until they can get out and loot some more. Then ties his boots, tucks in his grubby shirt, and picks up the shovel. She knows exactly what he's doing, but she still asks anyway. Where are you going? Where do you think? But do you have to? There are more of them out there, Anna. Don't you get it? I need to keep their numbers down. Can't let things get out of control here. And before she can argue, not that she would... He's gone. He opens the door and goes outside, locking it behind him. There are three bodies in the immediate vicinity, all coming his way. Is it wrong that I'm starting to like doing this? He feels a little uneasy at the fact he's beginning to enjoy hacking down the dead and disposing of their remains. It makes him feel powerful, vindicated, justified. Christ knows he needs to feel that way. He's waited long enough. Please, Keith, Anna yells from an open window, but it's clear he's not interested. He's not even listening. He's focused now, all his attention directed towards the nearest of the bodies. When Keith was young, there was a man who used to come around to the house to see Mom. Mr. Chapman, his name was. This corpse looks just like him. It's not Mr. Chapman, of course, because he died years ago, and he probably looks a hell of a lot worse than this weak old cadaver now lurching towards him. The corpse is wearing a suit and tie, and its neck has swollen so badly that the tie has tightened like a noose. It would be cutting off its air supply, if it was still breathing, or its circulation, if its blood was still being pumped. Everything above its neck has swollen, too. Its eyes are bulging and its jowls are sagging. Its oversized tongue is hanging from its mouth like a huge slug. Keith spends more time looking at it than killing it. A flurry of blows from his shovel, and it's lying motionless at his feet. One more for the next fire. Key thinks that this next corpse would have been quite a looker back in the day, back before she died. She's still got a great figure. And if you look past the greenish tinge to her flesh, and the nasty gash under her right eye, and all the extra folds and creases where her body has become distended with gaseous bloat, she still looks pretty good. He almost feels bad that he's going to have to hack her down but he does it just the same. He starts with one of his specialties, the shovel to the back of her head. He knocks her flying and puts his boot down between her shoulders to stop her getting up again. He lifts the shovel blade up, ready to bring it down and sever her spinal cord when he stops. Keith! Bloody Anne is calling him again. He turns around, ready to berate her and put her in her place again, but then freezes. There are two people standing in front of the bungalow talking to her through the open window. All nerves gone, no time to think, Keith sprints back down to the house and positions himself directly between Anna and the others. Hey, one of the survivors, a woman, says. What do you want? We want to help. We should go with them, Keith, Anna says from behind him. There's four of them. They reckon there might be more. They're not far from here and... He pushes her back inside and shuts the window in her face. Conversation over. We don't need your help, he tells the intruders, because that's what they are. I was here earlier, the man says. I know, I saw you. And like Jen says, we just want to help. There's so few of us left, we think it'd be better if we all stuck together. We're fine, Keith says, struggling to contain his anger. Thanks anyway. You don't look fine, Jen remarks, looking him up and down. He's absolutely filthy, covered in mud and blood and dried rot. He's getting tired of this. Times past, he'd have struggled to hold his own in a conversation like this. But things have changed. He's changed. He's a new man now, a stronger man. He knows what he's doing. He pulls Anna's pistol from his back pocket, and the two survivors immediately begin to retreat, arms raised in submission. Take it easy, the man says. We don't want any trouble. We were only trying to help. And I already told you, I don't need your help. Fuck off and leave us alone. We're okay here. What about your friend? Jen asks, gesturing over his shoulder. Anna's frightened face is pressed against the glass, watching helplessly. What about her? I don't think she's fine. I think she wants to come with us. She's staying. But don't you think... I said she's staying here, he interrupts, and he takes a couple of steps towards them, gun still raised, pointing it from face to face. They continue to back away. Okay, okay, the male survivor says. We get the message. We're sorry. Didn't mean anything by it. Keep going and don't come back, he warns, and he watches them till they're gone. Back inside the bungalow, Anna's sitting in the corner, sobbing. Why wouldn't you let me go? We don't need them, Anna. We're okay here. But I wanted to go. You're not going anywhere. You're staying here with me. You need me, remember? It's for your own good. You want to get through this, don't you? Yes, but... Then you do as I say. I'm in charge. Don't forget it. She nods and sniffs back more tears, but doesn't move. She watches Keith intently now as he shoves the gun into his back pocket again and starts mooching through the council's supplies. He's sure he's seen what he needs somewhere here, and then he finds it. With a triumphant yes, he emerges from the chaos with a hammer and a box of nails. He uses them to secure those windows which open, then nails planks of wood and other scraps over the glass. He says it's to stop anyone getting in, but Anna knows it's more to stop her getting out. Keith does all of this with a sense of calm, a fragile inner peace, because he really is in control now. For the first time in his life, what happens next is up to him, and the first thing which needs doing is to get rid of those damn bodies. The arrival of those two intruders an hour or so ago really put the cat amongst the pigeons. He'd already started the morning's cull, but the interruption and associated noise meant that those bodies he didn't deal with were left to wander. They found their way to the bungalow. No surprise. His banging and Anna's crying didn't help. And they're not going anywhere. They frequently block out the light as they wander back and forth past the boarded-up windows. You don't have to kill them all, Anna says, nerves mounting again as she watches him get ready. She's still in the corner, still not daring to move. We've been through this. The more of them I get rid of now, the fewer we'll have left to deal with later. And anyway, it's easy. There's millions, though. I know. But Keith, I... He's not listening. He's already on his way out the door. And Anna knows this is her moment. She gets up in a flash and shoves him out of the way, knocking him into one of the bodies as she tries to squeeze past and make a run for it. Keith runs after her, knowing he can probably upsprint her, and knowing there's nowhere else for her to go. Silly little bitch. What the hell does she think she's doing? He's as good as he thinks he is. Anna zigzags across the park, ducking around three wandering bodies on one side and five on the other, while Keith sprints straight at her, just barging the dead away. The gap closes quickly. Anna reaches the stream, but it's too wide to jump, and she has to double back, losing more precious meters. Keith reaches out for her, but she slips him. She's more experienced than he is. He's never been done for shoplifting and had to make a run for it. She has. He's never broken out of a hostel and has had to get across town on foot in the middle of the night. She has. He's never had to get away from blokes who've been following her since she got off the bus. She has. There's a footbridge over the stream. She runs across, but trips on a crack in the concrete. She staggers on a short distance further, losing her balance more and more with each stumbled step, then goes down fully. Keith grabs hold of her and picks her back up Wrapping his arms tight around her, she kicks and squirms, but he's not letting go. She screams, and the piercing noise deafens him and fills the air. Keep the noise down, for Christ's sake, he tells her. You'll get us both killed. She knows there's no use fighting, and she gives up, letting him carry her all the way back to the bungalow. He roughly throws her inside and locks her in. I'm doing this for both of us, Anna. He says before he leaves her, I'm doing this to keep us both safe, and he shuts the door and secures it with a padlock and chain on the outside this time. Right. Back to business. He clears up the remaining mass outside quickly, breathlessly. He swapped his shovel for a pickaxe now, and the kills are easier than ever. It takes more effort to lift the pick than it does to dispatch the bodies. As long as he hits the head, the bodies go down. He laughs to himself as he butchers what's left of them. It's just like all those movies Anna was on about. Not that I ever watched them. Go for the brain. Anna watches through a gap between the boards across the largest window, and he knows she's watching. He can't see her from this distance, but he knows she's watching, and he puts on quite a performance. He needs to show her, and anyone else who happens to be watching, dead or otherwise... That he's the boss. He needs them to know that right here, right now, what he says goes. With all the rogue bodies mopped up, Keith marches up the hill towards the main gates and stops a little way back. Are you sure about this, Keith? He knows what he has to do now, and why he has to do it. He needs to get rid of more of the bodies. Doing that will leave everyone in no doubt that he's in charge, that they shouldn't mess with Keith. If they made a film of his life, Keith thinks, not that there's anyone left to make films, or even to watch them, for that matter, then they'd call it King of the Dead. He stands in front of the rotting crowd outside the park with more confidence than he can remember having in a long time, if ever. He remembers Anna doing this when they first arrived here, and he understands why she did it now. It's a weird kind of power trip. It's a way of showing the dead what's what, of telling them he's untouchable. "'Morning all,' he says, chipperly. He's not expecting any response, and is surprised when he gets one. A wave of reaction quickly spreads through the maggot-infested ranks from front to back, even though those furthest from him probably don't even know he's there. They react to the reactions of those in front. It spreads like wildfire.' Some of them try to grab at him through the railings, arms at full stretch. He decides to save them the bother. Working quickly and carefully, he slides open the latch and opens the gate wide enough to let the first few through. He pushes the barrier shut again, getting it closed before the bulk of the dead masses can get any smart ideas. About ten of them have made it into the park, and Keith immediately sets about them with the pickaxe. He swings the heavy garden tool around wildly, hacking the damn things down. And even if he doesn't manage to take out their brains, he at least makes sure he does enough damage to their spines or their legs to incapacitate them sufficiently so they no longer pose any threat. Vile creatures. And that's all they are now, he decides. Creatures. There's nothing human about them anymore. He wonders if there ever was, because he's felt this disconnected from the rest of the human race for a long time. With all of these corpses down, he works his way around them, finishing each of them off. Most can hardly move, but they react when he approaches. Some stretch up their arms, almost like they're pleading with him to put them out of their misery, and Keith's more than happy to oblige. Panting, soaked through with sweat, he admires his impressive handiwork. Another batch of bodies reduced to next to nothing in the space of just a few minutes' effort. He's never felt this strong before. Never had such power. A couple of others managed to get away when he first let them into the park. But that's not a problem. He'll deal with them later. He looks back at the bungalow and watches them amble awkwardly down the hill. There's a part of him hopes Anne is still watching. But he can't see her from here. There are a few more bodies, though. He sees another one stumbling out from a thicket the way they do, crawling, then walking. Time for more. He hasn't had enough yet. He can feel the tensions of the morning easing away. Keith lets another group of dead things into the park, a few more this time. He's learning not to be afraid of people at last, and he's wondering why he ever was. He used to spend all of his time keeping out of everyone else's way before now, doing what he could to melt into the background and avoid being noticed. He always felt like he was pushing in the opposite direction to everyone else, going anti-clockwise while they all went the other way, what he thought was the right way. Why did he bother? Okay, so the rest of the human race is far easier to deal with in this miserable, pitiful state. But were they ever really as big a problem as he used to believe? If he'd shown a little backbone like this... Before they all died, would he have commanded more respect? Remembering how he used to be makes him feel angry more than anything else. And Keith vents that frustration on another eight corpses. Anna can't work out exactly what it is he's doing. He keeps disappearing now, vanishing under masses of groping arms and lumbering bodies, eventually reemerging like something out of that bloody Evil Dead film she watched once and hated. But he needs to be careful because she can see something he can't. She'd shout and tell him, but she's trapped in here. And anyway, it'd only make things worse. Much worse. She doesn't know how, what's happening, or why, but there are crowds of bodies in the park now, many of them moving in from the opposite direction to where Keith's fighting. It's like a bloody army. Hundreds of them. Are these things somehow communicating with each other now? Is this a coordinated attack? Are they responding to the noise Keith's making out there? Or are they responding to something else entirely? Whatever the reason, she knows she's dead if she stays here much longer. She starts hunting through the equipment the council left behind, looking for something with which she can fight her way out of this damn bungalow. Keith's taking another breather, having got rid of the second lot of corpses in less time than the first. He looks down at his blood-soaked getup, and not for the first time, curses his short-sightedness. He's been wearing the same clothes for days now. They were in a bad enough state before, but now they're appalling. He's soaked through with blood and other liquids, which are easier to identify through smell rather than sight. He's literally a bloody mess. A rank, rancid, bloody mess. He's thinking he'll take Anna out with him tomorrow to loot another house and get them both some new gear but not yet. Right now he's still focused on getting rid of more of these damn bodies because he's starting to realize that if he can destroy a few more large batches, then the numbers around the main entrance to the park will have reduced. And that has to be a good thing, doesn't it? If they can think and feel anything, if there's any kind of cognitive thought still flickering through their dumb, decaying brains, then maybe they'll realize He's a big deal, after all, and finds someone else to hound. Those other survivors, for example. Keith doubts the man and woman who trespassed here earlier would be capable of doing what he's doing right now. As if to prove a point, albeit only to himself, he lets in the next batch of corpses. There's a definite surge forward when he opens the gates this time, and many more get through than he intended. No matter, it'll take a little longer to deal with them than planned, but he's sure he'll get through all of them in time. The first few go down as quickly as expected, though it's harder to see clearly what's happening now because there are so many of the damn things swarming all around him. They each try to rush him, as if they can't wait to be killed. The smell starts to affect him. He's panting with the effort of this physical exertion, each time sucking in lungfuls of rank, foul-tasting air tainted with stale rot and must and other, even more repellent smells. The dead are crisscrossing in front and behind him, as many appearing to be herding towards him as those trying to get out of his way. And then, through a random gap in the chaos, he sees something which blindsides him. At first he can't believe it. He stops fighting now and just pushes more of the dead out of the way when they get too close letting them wander down the hill towards the bungalow. This is important. This is really important. There's a dead face, he recognizes, pressed up against the park gate. Dad? He's not looked good for a long time now, but Dad looks so bloody awful this morning that Keith's not entirely sure it is him, until he's had a good chance to get closer and have a good look. He recognizes the clothes he was wearing. The vest, stained more than he remembers. And those old trousers. They'd always been tight around his belly, but his distended gut has ballooned, and he has a huge roll of pallid flesh hanging over his gusset now. His swollen skin is streaked with veins like cheese. It looks bruised. For half a second, Keith's concerned, wondering how he got hurt, but the concern disappears fast. Keith just doesn't care anymore. To be honest, he didn't care much anyway. What he did, he did through duty, not love. He walks away from the gate again, priorities conflicted, taking out a few more random bodies on the way. He notices quite a crowd building up near the bungalow now, but that's okay. He'll deal with them later. Right now, he thinks as he swings the pickaxe into the face of another corpse that gets in the way, he needs to decide what he's going to do about Dad. The one thing he knows for certain is he can't just leave him here. Don't get the wrong idea. He's not feeling sorry for his dead old man. He doesn't want to help him by ending his torment. Quite the opposite, in fact. He wants Dad to suffer for what he did to Mum. He wants Dad to suffer for making his life an empty, living hell for the last few years. In fact, he realizes he wants to make his dad suffer, because he did worse than that. He snatched Keith's life from him, stripped him of his freedom and choice, took away his real purpose, and left him a zombie. Empty and vacuous. Just existing. For Christ's sake, why did it take me until the end of the bloody world to realize it? Keith thinks it's time to get his own back. He deals with the last few stragglers of this particular batch, which are still in range, just doing enough to incapacitate them now not bothering with anything more final. They lie in pieces all around him, still reaching out with what's left of useless arms and broken hands, their bulging eyes staring at him, mouths opening and closing, forming silent screams. Keith knows it's time. He yanks the gate open again and pulls Dad's body through, the useless lump of decaying flesh tripping and falling at his feet. He pushes the gate back, then hauls Dad upright, and the two of them finally face each other, man to man, one aware, the other barely even existing. It's like something out of an old Wild West movie. Keith passes the pick from hand to hand, and when Dad inadvertently lurches at him, he uses the end of the tool to push him away, laughing nervously as the old man rocks back on unsteady feet. Keith knows this could be over in seconds. A few well-aimed swings and swipes, and that'll be the end of Dad. But that's not enough. That would feel strangely anticlimactic. He'd barely even break sweat. No, Dad deserves more than that. And when Keith thinks about Mum and all the damage Dad did, he knows he's going to get more, too. He uses the pick to start with. He hacks at Dad's legs, shattering his ankles and then both knees, After almost a week's worth of decay, his father's flesh can take nowhere near as much abuse as it did during life. Skin splits, bone splinters and sinews snap, and Dad's almost immediately down again. Keith writes him. His old man strikes a comical pose, reduced to half height. He's in full view of the crowds outside the park, and that pleases Keith, too. The nearest of them are just a meter or so away and they rattle the gate with increased excitement as the one-sided battle continues. Now the pelvis and hips? Dad's flat on his back now, looking straight at Keith, unable to move from the waist down. His humiliation is almost complete. A couple more pickaxe swings, and Keith destroys his shoulders, too, and now the corpse can barely move at all. It would be so easy just to swing the pickaxe one more time and put it right through the middle of his face. The crowd's going wild behind him, and Keith's about to do it, when he remembers. The gun. Keith does swing the pickaxe, but this time he brings it crashing down on Dad's ribcage, smashing right through his body, and feeling the tip of the pick sink into the tarmac Dad's lying on. He can't go anywhere now, can't escape. Keith takes the pistol from his back pocket and examines it. He's never fired a gun before, doesn't know how but it can't be that difficult, can it? First time, he simply aims and pulls the trigger, but nothing happens. Is there some kind of safety catch? He examines it again, running his fingers over either side, and he finds a latch, and he's sure this must be it. But before he can do anything, he hears someone shouting his name, and it's not Anna. Keith spins around and sees that the appearance of the park has changed dramatically in the short time he's been up here at the top of the hill. The open expanses of Grassland are no longer open. There are hundreds of bodies here now, and from his unexpectedly good vantage point, he can see hundreds more approaching, too. They're coming from all parts of the surrounding area, drawn here by the noise he's been making, no doubt, and yet they're not all coming for him. Most are converging on the bungalow, and who the hell just called his name? Whoever it was, they're shouting again keith picks out a group of four figures moving with more purpose than the rest around the little building it's the two survivors who were here earlier and there are more of them here too christ how many are there the fact the place is swarming with bodies is of little importance to keith he's more concerned that his precious little oasis of calm and space has been violated once again by these unwanted intruders and to make matters worse as he starts running down towards them The fuckers are trying to break into the bungalow and get Anna. Get away, he yells at them as he runs. Get out of here and leave us alone! He can already see Anna hammering at the glass as one of the trespassers tries to force the door. Christ, they've got metal cutters. They'll be through the padlock and chain in no time. Keith throws himself at the woman survivor, tackling her to the ground, then picks himself up and runs at the next nearest of them. This guy's taking no shit. But Keith's a changed man now, and he's not about to roll over and give up. He uses a nearby body as a weapon, charging into the disease-ridden creature and using it to slam the survivor up against the bungalow wall. The noise seems to excite the dead even more than before. They're closing in en masse now. The bungalow door is opened by another survivor Keith can't get to, and Anna throws herself into the man's arms, sobbing with relief. There are bodies everywhere now the nearest of them beginning to attack. But Keith barely even looks at them, because all he can see is Anna locked in an embrace with someone else. His Anna holding another man. Why is she doing this to him? Anna! We need to get out of here, Keith, she says, still clinging on to the other man. It's too dangerous. We have to go. You're not going anywhere, he tells her, and he strides towards her and grabs her arm. When the male survivor he fought with moments earlier tries to pull him away, he reveals the pistol and shoves it into the other man's face. Everything changes. The survivors freeze, and Anna screams at him to stop. The excitement of the dead rises to a new level as they react to the noise and movement, and they swarm like flies around shit. But wait, Anna's not screaming at him to stop. She's screaming something else. She's not even talking to him. She's talking to them. It's empty, she's shouting. There's no bullets. I never had no bullets. And Keith just looks at the weapon in his hand. Useless. It looks the part, but serves no function. Just like him. He pulls the trigger again and again, aiming at face after face. But nothing happens. The wind has been knocked from his sails. He looks from Anna to the gun, then back again. He moves towards her, but a random body has other ideas and it crashes into him. He throws it to one side dismissively, then does the same with another. They're everywhere now. Dumb, dirty, fucking things. And then another grabs hold of him. But this one has real strength. He tries to push it away, but it has him tight in its grip and won't let go. Wait, what's happening here? Keith, the man survivor from this morning says, looking right into his eyes. We need to get you away from here, mate. You need to come with us. Not going anywhere, he says, and he pushes the man away. He tries to move towards Anna again, but the nearer he gets, the more she recoils. She'd rather be with them than with me, he realizes. She'd choose the dead over me now. And in a fit of barely controlled anger, Keith wrestles himself free, then swings the useless gun around and uses it to club the survivor on the side of the face. The man screams and staggers back, blood pouring from a gash on his forehead, and his noise appears to revitalize the dead yet again. Almost as one, they change direction and head for him. His colleagues immediately see the danger and begin their retreat. Anne is leaving with them. Keith grabs the shovel from outside the bungalow and swings it at the nearest few cadavers, carving a path through the crowd. But it's too little, too late. He can see the others looking up at the park gates where he's been fighting, and what he sees happening up there makes his legs weaken with nerves. He thought he'd closed the gates after dragging Dad through, but the sheer weight of dead flesh pushing from the other side has forced them open again. They're swung apart, and there are hundreds upon hundreds of corpses stumbling down the hill towards him now, Gravity and the slope of the land combining to drag them all down towards the bungalow. An unstoppable flood of decay. Too many? For half a moment, he genuinely tries to weigh up the odds. Can I do this? Can I get rid of them all? But even in this terrified, deluded state, Keith knows it's hopeless. You fucking maniac! He hears Anna shouting. Look what you did! And he does. He watches the advancing crowd, transfixed. And there's still part of him that's wondering if this is an opportunity, not a threat. ''Last chance, Keith!'' one of the survivors yells at him, their voice quieter now as they move away. ''Come on, mate, you need to get out of here!'' But Keith's not going anywhere. He starts to fight, because for him, there's been nothing better than this place for a long time. He wants to reclaim it. He wants it back to how it was. How it used to be before those damn people turned up and messed it all up. Just him and her. He was okay when it was just him and Anna. She was okay, too. But now she's gone. He looks all around, but he can't see her. He can't see any of the other survivors, either. Just more and more bodies everywhere. They're all coming for him now. He thinks he's the only one left in the park. He has an image in his head of clearing this place again than having the mother of all bonfires tonight, when the job's done. When Anna sees the smoke, she'll know he did it, and she'll come back to him. He's sure she will. Wait for me, Anna, he shouts, oblivious to the way his raised voice riles the cadavers which surround him. But before he can get her back, First Keith has several hundred bodies to get rid of. Maybe even more. Christ, they're still flooding in through the open gate. There are probably thousands here now. Keith hacks at the nearest few, but the dead are coming thick and fast, and a shovel and an empty gun just aren't going to cut it. He looks for alternatives, trying to remember all the stuff he kept inside the bungalow. He has a couple of knives, he's sure, and there was definitely a mallet there somewhere, and then there's what's left of the fuel from the mower. If he could get a big enough fire started, maybe the flames would just spread from body to body and the crowd would take care of itself. He parries with the shovel thrusting it deep into the gut of another corpse which he then manhandles back against the bungalow wall. He pulls the blade out again, a wave of putrefying innards spilling everywhere, then pushes past another glut of cadavers, then grabs the bungalow door and forces his way inside. There's gotta be something here I can use. The dead are trying to get in after him, but he can't afford to let them. He uses the shovel to block the door, wedging it under the handle. Now he's got time to think, space to breathe. He looks around the dark little building, trying to find weapons, but it's so dark in here compared to outside that it's hard to see anything. And before his eyes have even properly adjusted to the light levels, the dead have begun to clamor at the windows. All he can see are dead faces everywhere now, all those lifeless eyes staring back at him. The corpses try to scratch their way through the glass, and when that doesn't work, they start banging. Soon, the tiny building is echoing with deafening noise as scores of cadavers hammer on the walls. Keith's still not scared. He's excited. I can do this. Did you see how many of them I killed out there today, Anna? Did you see what I did to my dad? The volume of noise inside the bungalow is almost unbearable now. Keith leans back against the wall, feeling the dead hordes outside beating against it and he uses the noise to fuel his desire. It's like a tribal rhythm, a constant stirring noise, like the battle drums of an approaching army. But he's still not phased, not concerned. He knows he can do this. Near his feet, he finds a pair of rusty shears, a perfect weapon. He visualizes himself plunging the blade into the faces of countless attackers, slicing rotting flesh, impaling bodies, He pictures being back out there in the middle of the park, surrounded by his many conquests, his enemies lying in pieces around his feet. It's time. He looks around the bungalow one more time before going out there. Anna's stuff is all over the place, as usual, and he spends a couple of minutes putting it all back in order, ready for when she comes home. He holds one of her shirts up to his face and breathes in deeply. He can still smell her. He can still hear her voice, all the mispronunciations and grammatical screw-ups. Give him enough time, and he'll educate her right and straighten her out. She could really be someone if she sticks with him. She'll come around. Soon enough, she'll realize how good she had it here, and she'll come crawling back with her tail between her legs. That's what Dad used to say to Mum. You'll be back. He's at the window now, standing on what was Anna's bed. His face at the glass is sending the part of the crowd gathered here into an absolute frenzy. But he just ignores them, because he's looking beyond them, out towards the gates where they continue to enter the park, their numbers undiminished. It's going to be a long day. I might not get it all done today. I'll probably still be fighting this time tomorrow. Keith ties his laces and tucks in his shirt. He flattens down his hair and wipes mud and blood from his face. Then he stands and faces the door, weapon held ready. He thinks about all the people at work. If they could see me now. He thinks about his parents. Wish Mom could see how I stood up to Dad. He thinks about Anna. Hope you're watching this, Anna. I'm king of the dead. And he kicks away the shovel and opens the door, and within seconds the bungalow is filled with a tidal wave of dead flesh. And Keith's last thought as he swept up and slammed against the back of the building is how he hates people and how he can't wait until it's just him and Anna again. Won't be long. Wait for me, Anna. They watch from the balcony of the flats. Five of them now. The park is an overcrowded mass of shadows and shapes, so many that it's no longer possible to make out individuals It's like the entire place has crusted over a single rotten scab. They see a movement, a sudden surge of excitement, and they can tell from the direction the bodies are trying to go that something's happened near to the bungalow. It can only be Keith, and it can only be bad news. Sorry about your friend, Jen says to Anna, laying a hand on her shoulder. Anna just shakes her head. Fucking freak he weren't no friend of mine. But I thought... Anna doesn't say anything. She takes her phone from her pocket. Just a few minutes of battery charge left and shows her a picture of Josh.